On March 14, 2022, Scott Hall passed away. He was 63 years old. With a multi-decade career in professional wrestling that spanned the NWA, AWA, New Japan, WWF, WCW, TNA, and more, Hall's talent in the ring and tremendous charisma made him an absolute superstar. He was central to both the WWF and WCW in the 1990s especially, as Razor Ramon in the former, and as a founding member of the NWO in the latter. With his shocking appearance to declare war on WCW on Nitro to kick off the NWO angle on May 27, 1996, Hall was one of a very few people who could truly claim to have changed the direction of the wrestling business. He will be dearly missed by his friends and family and by his many fans. We pray for peace and comfort for those he leaves behind. May they share in the joy of his memory. everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days, and not so good old days, like tonight, of World Championship Wrestling Series by Series. I'm your host, Bob Moore, and here to challenge me for the World Championship podcasting title while also being half of the tag champs with me is Alec Bridgen. I mean, it seemed like a good time. I know you pretty well. Like, you had your weakest, yeah. <laughs> Al, no matter how our match turns out, I just want you to know that I value your friendship and I won't hit you with a chair shot to the face. I'll go for the back. It's easier to ambush you that way. I, I appreciate your honesty. <laughs> and your practicality. It, it, it is very practical. It is, yeah. Tonight, we are taking a look at Spring Stampede 2000, Stomp of Approval. Well, this show may make you want to stomp something, so it's half right at least. This may be more a group therapy session than a review. Yeah, probably. (laughs) Spring Stampede 2000 was held on April 16th, 2000 at the United Center in Chicago, Illinois, in front of a very much not sold out crowd of 12,556, 8,377 paid. The United Center is recorded as holding between 19,000 and 23,500, depending on the event. So we are well, well, well below full. And this isn't one of the shows like the previous ones where they have all this elaborate stage dressing and stuff in front. No. (laughs) And actually, in this case, we have some evidence of what the crowd could be for a wrestling show specifically, as the WWF sold out this same arena for SummerSlam 1994. Oh, okay. That's the Undertaker versus Underfaker show, of all things. Oh, yeah. And that was recorded at 23,000. Okay. So yeah, WSW missed selling out by over 10,000 people. Yowza. <laughs> if you look at paid, so it was 8,000 something, right? Yeah, yeah. Only only 8,000 actually paid. So they sold, what, 33% of the building, roughly? 8,000 out of possibly 23,000? Yes, yeah, yeah, about that. <laughs> That's not good. 
Spring Stampede 2000 earned 100,000 pay-per-view buys. That's about 120,000 less than last year. Yet one of the things that comes up we really don't address, which is that you say 100,000, that sounds like a lot. But again, you have to put it in context of, you said it was 220,000 yeah. last time. Yeah, WCW's highest show ever, I believe, is Starcade 97, which is like 650,000. Something, something so big like that, yeah. This is less than a sixth of that. Right. Sadly, it is the highest amount of pay-per-view buys in 2000 or 2001. Oof, ouch. Only sold out in January gets even close at 95,000. And after Spring Stampede, WCW never even reaches 80,000 again. Oh, man. Not to spoil anything, but I could certainly see this show being responsible for over 20,000 people deciding to never watch WCW pay-per-views again. <laughs> yeah, I-, I could see the whole sort of car crash appeal of this as well. Because, oh, he's new owners and all this stuff is we're going to cover. So I could see it drawing more people than it might not, maybe you might have drawn in before. But those people did not stick around, clearly. Right. Yeah, I, I think with the concept of it being like a reboot... Yes. I think you you can see because of that, it bringing in some more people. Yeah. But at least 20,000 people gave them a chance tonight and decided never to again. Yeah, that's not good. Yeah. But it can't be all bad, right? To find out, (laughs) let's go to the ring. So cut back to the beginning of April 2000, when the company announced that a big change was coming. The April 3rd Nitro was a recap show, highlighting stories and feuds of the past. The stated reason was to prepare fans for what was come, to remind them of the past, to see the future. Mm -hmm. The unofficial reason and the real reason they did it was to set a low baseline rating. Because people aren't wanting to watch clip shows. (laughs) So then Mr. Bruce would come back and it's like, wow, the ratings are twice as high as they were. (laughs) It has been stated as true. So it's not conjecture. That is actually the point. Okay. The April 10th Nitro opens up with every WCW star except the real big ones, which is highlighted, to be fair. Hang around the ring, some of which get their own intro. There's so many people, so not everyone gets to be in the ring for this. Mm-hmm. A bunch of them are stuck around the outside, including my boy Laparka, who does make an appearance. <laughs> As Jeff Jarrett, of course, gets the last entrance of the heels because he's the U.S. champion at this point. Now, obviously, he's going to be important to show. It's actually a point where He's coming out to the ring, and the horror has to move out of his way, and the cameraman's away to let him cross his path. They just bunch so many people in this area, there's no room. <laughs> I notice him, one, because I love the park, but also because he's wearing his lucha mask and normal clothes, so that kind of stands out. It's just crowd. a bit. Yeah. So this initially brings out Vince Russo, who they make a point of saying, when he joined the company, said he would never appear on camera. So right off the bat, that's not true. He's been on at least one show we've covered. I distinctly remember him being on camera for Starcade 1999. Yes. Although he was, at least in most of that, shown Dr. Claw style. Yes. He does a big spiel about how the powers that be, you know, that got him fired. Weirdly, he name drops the World Wrestling Federation, which is always good to name your competition. <laughs> the one who is worldly beating you, by the way, at this point. <laughs> He wants to take credit, basically, for how much you all like WWF, so you should watch this show where I'm running everything. <laughs> he doesn't state that, but that's clearly the point. This brings out Eric Bischoff, who the commentators initially think is going to be a rival to Rousseau. Yeah, Vince Russo, the guy that backstage wrote for Raw. Oh, he definitely hates Eric Bischoff, I guess. Yeah, yeah. 
it weirdly thinks you know everything and also doesn't think you know anything. It's a very weird storytelling device. (laughs) So Bishop comes out and they tease like there's going to be a big fight. Then they hug in the ring. I kind of make the case that I think they did this too early. I get the idea that you need them to be aligned for this pay-per-view. But you have, at this point, a three-hour Nitro, I believe. They're still three hours. It felt like three hours. And you have a two-hour Thunder. So you're giving everything away right off the bat, and there's no intrigue for the rest of the show, as far as they're concerned. So when he comes out to Hogan later, you're like, well, obviously he's aligned with Russo. We saw that earlier. Right, yeah. Not a shock. Yeah. This is a weird idea. But yes, they talk all about the new blood. That's everyone in the ring, basically, except the big stars in the back, which includes Hulk Hogan, DDP, Lex Luger, Ric Flair, who, by the way, shows up an hour late for the show. As one does. Yes, as Ric Flair does, especially, I guess. And Sid Vicious, as well as Miss Elizabeth. He refers to them as the Millionaire's Club. It's just a derisive term that they're rich and they're not like you. But, of course, they're also the most popular people are in the company. Right. So... Are they expecting you to hate Hogan and them? I, I really can't follow the logic of the story already. I haven't even started the show yet. That's always the interesting question with this angle is, obviously what it turns out is the Millionaire's Club are the faces and the New Blood are the heels. Right. I would guess that that was always the plan, judging from the fact that the New Blood basically always act like heels. Right. But I could see it being the opposite. The only thing that really stops me from saying that it could be the opposite, is that they play Sting in the Millionaire's Club. True. And if you think that anyone is ever going to boo Sting, you are an absolute moron. Yeah, they try a couple times. Yeah. <laughs> I should also note, absent from the Millionaire's Club is Terry Funk. Yeah. Did he not manage his money well, I guess? I, I, I guess so. I mean, he, he spent it all on various weapons for his hardcore matches. Yeah. Money well spent, I want to say. I mean, just tonight, he probably spent $100,000 in soda. Yeah, he wasted a lot of coke. That's true. The big moment, however, is that Bischoff and Russo declare that all titles are vacant. It can be a clean slate for the company. All the champions lose their titles. I feel like I should mention this now because he doesn't appear at all in the show. They started a really dumb angle that ran only on Saturday night, and I think maybe once on Nitro, Mm -hmm. where Hacksaw Jim Duggan, who was the janitor, he technically wasn't employed as a wrestler, he was a janitor. He found the TV title that Scott Hall threw the trash like three months earlier. <laughs> the logic is that the trash from their show is transported from arena to arena, which is the kind of expense that WWE might actually do. I, I was going to say, like, I would call BS on that if this were any other company. Yeah. But yeah, so Hacksaw Jim Duggan is a TV champion. He defends it a bunch of times on the C-shows. And he's definitely in the crowd of people, but they don't mention the TV title ever again. It's just actually gone forever. Aww. I know. If you thought it was sad that they threw it away, which it was, the fact that it's taken away and never even mentioned in the reboot is really sad. Yeah, yeah. The big moment in Bischoff's head, but definitely not to the crowd. So at this point, Sid Vicious is the world champion. He tells Bischoff if he wants the world title, he's got to come down and take it from him. Fisher goes, okay, and walks really calmly down there. Because at this point, all the faces are on the front of the ramp. So he walks up and starts trying to belittle Sid and get him to attack him. He goes, what's the matter, Sid? Forgot your scissors? Pause. 
Nothing. Dead silence. Should I say it again? Yeah, I'll say it again. Nope, still nothing? Okay, move on. Oh, wow. Yeah, it's really bad. Yeah, because not everyone that goes to a wrestling show live knows every little story, uh-huh. even every major story yeah. that was reported by the Dirt Sheets several years ago. Yeah, there's a bunch of really silly insider stuff they do. Like, There's a bit with the Millions Cup when they first come out, where Bischoff and Russo were like, Joking that they decided to show up and they were busy. They're like, what's the matter, Sid? Not having a softball game today or something? And they go, better sting, not a, no Hollywood premiere. <laughs> which I guess they're referring to sting going to the premiere of Ray to Rumble, which is weird for them to be little, by the way. Yeah, because that'd be their movie. Yeah. Yes. In fact, they run footage of Sting on the red carpet on Thunder. Anyway, so that's where we are now. We have Bischoff and Russo fully in charge, like 80 people at this point barely even exaggeration given the roster that are all against like six people and they're all new blood which is a term they give for both younger wrestlers or at least new wrestlers to the company like say ernest miller vampiro but then there's other people that don't quite make as much sense like longtime employee scott steiner yes employed since at least 1991 uh 1989 thank you that's his first starcade is starcade oh you're right yeah New blood. The idea that Scott Steiner, who is not only employed by WCW on and off since 1989, but also a globally successful wrestler, is part of the new blood seeking new opportunities. Oh, and yeah. Alongside Buff Bagwell. These, these well. rookie guys. Oh, yeah. Buff Bagwell, I think at least 1990, 1991 himself. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like the idea that these guys uh-huh. are part of your new blood is, is patently ridiculous. Yes. But yeah. So all towns are vacant and. A bunch of stuff has been set up to have everyone qualify. So the big one is the main event. They set up the world title match. So they established that Jeff Jarrett is automatically going to be in the finals. Internally, the logic that Jeff Jarrett is no more contender is because he was U.S. champion. Okay. The problem is, of course, you just stripped him of the U.S. title. This is fair as well. Or you said he was no more contender. (laughs) So... So anyway, so they took for the Millionaires Club, which was Sid, Lex Luger, Sting, and DDP, made them all fight each other in a series of matches, which is won by DDP. Whoever won that got to be in the world title match at the end. Which is interesting, because for the world title tournament, they had one New Blood member, Jarrett, Uh and the rest of the tournament is all Millionaires Club. Yes. For the other tournaments, they have one Millionaire's Club member, and the entire rest of the tournament is New Blood. Because that's the storyline tonight, is Russo and Bischoff have stacked the deck in favor of the New Blood. But they didn't do that for the most important title. Yes, that's true. That is very strange. They stacked it in the sense that they had all four of them and only one gets to be there, but yeah. But that is how a tournament works. Yeah, I know. (laughs) But I mean in the sense that they... They wheeled down all of the main people into one single match and gave their own guy automatic buy. I mean, there's certainly, yes, they ensured a New Blood member would be in the final. Yes. But it just feels like you could have stuck also a New Blood member in among the Millionaires Club guys fighting their way through just to see, hey, can we get it to be New Blood versus New Blood? Yeah, right? <laughs> also worth noting that Lex Luger loses his match due to outside interference, of course. So he's out of the World Title Tournament. But him and Flair are just in the tag tile tournament. Yeah. They don't qualify for that, by the way. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. 
only qualifying that the Millionaire Club has to do to be on the show, other than DDP winning two matches, is they made Sid and Sting wrestle matches to try and qualify for the U.S. title tournament. They both had to win three-on-one handicap matches, ah, which were also no DQ. So they made Sid fight both members of Harlem Meet 2000 and their bodyguard, Cash, I believe the name is. <laughs> yes. They actually lost, by the way, to Sid Vicious when Booker T, who suddenly knew blood but clearly not aligned with them in spirit, mm-hmm. sort of got involved because his brother's there and the guy that kicked him out of the group is there. So Sid to be on the show, right? He's in the U.S. title tournament. Well, after this victory, he's knocked out by another new blood people, which Bischoff walks out afterwards, walks over, makes sure he's unconscious. He like kicks him a bit to make sure he doesn't get up. And then declares that Sid lost via DQ. <laughs> okay. Sid lost via DQ in a no DQ match. <laughs> oh, this company. As far as Sting goes, he had to fight, it was supposed to be three Vianos. However, one of the Vianos is clearly not a regular one of them. Okay. And is Jeff Jarrett. Oh, okay. Now, of course, that doesn't mean that Sting lost that match, because Sting is on the show in the US title tournament. So Jeff Jarrett came out, got involved in the match, in disguise, but also didn't stop Sting from winning this match to be on the show. <laughs> so he's not very good at being a bad guy. No, no, no. Not particularly. We also have Cruiserweights going for the title, and we have two people going for the prestigious WCW Hardcore title as well. All right. Ric Flair, you are a piece of sh- on the bottom of my shoe, I'm gonna scrape off that and flush your down the toilet personally. Russo's come out wielding a baseball bat. They're out to end his career right now. I am the Batman. Russo just grabbed Ric Flair's watch. That's a $15,000 Rolex. That is the face of a man in complete control of the new blood. Complete control of the new blood. Complete control of WCW. And Ric Flair, when all is said and done, you will be my New York In one fell swoop, the focus of the entire company has changed. The biggest mistake I've ever made. I mean, this is a real big one. Hulk Hogan. Oh my God! Oh my God! Oh my God! He hit Hogan! Bischoff just waffled Hogan with a chair! He waffled Hogan with a chair! Kidman pinned Hogan! Billy Kidman pinned Hogan and Eric Bischoff counted the fall! I never thought we would see the day when Bischoff would wipe Hogan out with a chair! And as far as Bischoff goes, I'm gonna eat his... Oh, get that camera out of here! Hogan's in that limousine! The White Hover is back from last summer! It's Bischoff! Oh my god! Buy your way out of that! WCW's 1999-2001 logo glares at us again, and we cut to the opening video package, which is a jumble of clips from WCW's TV shows, showing Vince Russo assaulting Ric Flair, the New Blood ripping off the NWO's spray paint gimmick, Eric Bischoff hugging Vince Russo and betraying Hogan in favor of Billy Kidman, and Eric Bischoff attempting vehicular homicide against Hulk Hogan. We cut backstage and see Eric Bischoff, who's with Vince Russo, Tori Wilson, and Billy Kidman. 
a very worried Bischoff, says Hogan checked himself out of the hospital, but Kidman assures him that it's no problem because all they have to do is do vehicular homicide correctly this time. Well, this recording would provide exceptional evidence at their surely upcoming trial. Yeah. Fortunately, no one watches these shows, so they're probably okay. (laughs) True, true. (laughs) Seriously, though, this is one of those things that hurts wrestling in this era. Is this being filmed from the character's perspective or not? Yeah. I have to assume not, since Kidman, now that he's not in his heroin addict gimmick, doesn't strike me as dumb enough to confess to attempted murder live on TV. Yeah. And it's just another example of the running question in this era. What is actually on camera? Mm-hmm. We cut back to a TV-style title sequence, showing clips of the wrestlers fighting. It ends with Bischoff's white Hummer slamming into Hogan's car, just to drive home the point that some of the people appearing on this show should be in prison awaiting trial. Yes. Host Tony Schiavone welcomes us to the show as we scan over this year's stage, which sucks. Yes, a lot. It's just a basic metal entryway with a white backdrop on which the Spring Stampede logo, which at least reused last year's nice Bullhorns logo, is projected. There's no Old West buildings. Nope. No barns. Nope. No bulls. Nope. No stagecoaches. Uh-uh. Not even the wooden fencing from prior years. Nope. It's so boring. Yeah, it is. They do at least have kind of country-sounding music playing, but that's the only sign of the show's prior excellent cowboy theme. Tony, laughably, calls this a capacity crowd. <laughs> I think we've gone, gone over what the definition of capacity is. With yes. them. Yeah, as mentioned before, it's about 10,000 away from capacity, and boy, can you tell. Yes. He builds up the multiple title tournaments tonight and introduces co-host Scott Hudson and... <sighs> Yeah. Mark Madden. Yep. The sad thing is, they didn't angle on Nitro, where Tank Abbott, who, by the way, is not on this show, despite being built up as important, beats up Mark Madden at ringside. And I'm like, oh, good, he's not going to be on the show. And here he is. Tony says Madden got tanked. And for a second, I thought he meant fired, but he actually means, as in, beat up. Beat up by Tank Abbott, yes. (laughs) Hudson says Bischoff and Russo have stacked the deck, with most of the participants in the U.S. and tag tournaments being their new blood allies. Madden bellows about wanting Jeff Jarrett to beat D.D. Me, a nickname so clever it's not. Yeah, if you hate the D.D. Me line, you'll really hate the show, because they say it about 10,000 times. Yeah, to, to be fair, it's almost exclusively Madden. Oh, yeah. But yeah. Tony says Bischoff and Russo have told the referees to relax the DQ rule tonight, so at least we're openly stating the rules will barely matter tonight. Hudson calls it playground rules for some reason. I'm not sure where he grew up, but on my childhood playgrounds, there weren't any chair shots. Did he go to the Battle Royale High School? (laughs) That's all I could figure. Errors are legal, kids. Have fun. Tony tells us to forget about seeing wrestling matches, which is a bit of an odd advertisement for a wrestling show. Bit, yeah. Is this WCF, like World Championship Fighting now? <laughs> I guess so. Our first match is the Mamalukes, that's Johnny the Bull and Big Vito, accompanied by Disco Inferno, versus Team Package, the Nature Boy Ric Flair and the Total Package Lex Luger with Elizabeth, in a WCW World Tag Team Tournament semifinal match. The referee for this is Slick Johnson. 
We get a pretty cool overhead shot of Dave Penzer doing the announcing that really highlights the alighting during the Mamelukes entrance. They come out to their Godfather ripoff theme, yeah, led by Disco. By the way, this is about four months after this team kidnapped Disco in a clear attempt to give him some concrete galoshes. Yes, that's true. <laughs> he got over it, I guess. Yeah, you do. We cut backstage to Gene Okerlund, who is with Team Package. Indeed, I thank you very much, Tony Schiavone. Lex Luger, the total package, along with the lovely Elizabeth. Lex all set to go. Nature Boy, Rick Flair, you're here in your street here. What does that mean? I'm here because Russo's made it clear to me. It's a street fight. It's survival. Team Package, look at us all you can look. Russo, we're ready to go. Woo! Street fight rules, baby. Woo! Woo! Russo! Woo! Uh, this was short, but wonderfully manic. Yes. Flair seems to think that Luger alone is Team Package, and also that dress pants and a nice collared shirt qualify as street fight clothes. Yeah. It's hilarious, by the way, watching Luger and Liz in this especially, as both of them clearly lose it and start laughing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they do. Luger manages to cover a little by flexing and nodding his head as well, but both clearly have the giggles. So uh, you can actually see Gene kind of start to turn towards Luger late in the promo, like, does Lex want to say something? Mm. And realize he's not going to be able to because he's just holding in the giggles. Yeah. So he wisely decides to to leave that to just flare. That's good. <laughs> it's a uh, wonderfully manic Ric Flair. It's definitely funny that his golf attire is a street fight. Yes. Yeah. Does he like play full contact golf? Is that the idea? <laughs> Well, he, he took Heenan up on his suggestion from last year. Oh, that golf should involve run-ins. Oh, yeah, that's true. Luger and Flair enter separately. We get no Flair robe, which is always really sad. But there is one teenager in the crowd that came in a Flair-style robe, so there's that. That's something. It's kind of sad when members of the audience are dressed better than Ric Flair. Yeah, a little bit. The two get in the ring, but Russo's music hits, and he comes on the stage to let us know that Slick Rick and Very Small Package ha. are two veterans facing two rookies, so he's adding the Harris brothers to the match. Big Vito has been wrestling since 1990. He is hardly a rookie. The Harris twins come out and join the match, making it four on two. Their shirts say, I survived the H-bomb, referencing their finisher. So, wait, does that mean they survived their own finisher? I guess they have to practice it, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And presumably they were selling those shirts, in which case there's fans walking around with shirts proclaiming that the Harris's finisher is no big deal. It's kind of a strange shirt idea. Yeah, the more you think about it, sure. (laughs) So, question. Yes. If the Harris's win, who advances in the tournament? That is a good question, yes. Are they just part of the Mamelukes team for this match, and the Mamelukes advance even if the Harris's win? Or are the two New Blood teams also kind of competing with each other? It's really unclear. Yeah, like if one of the Harris brothers is counted out, does that mean the other three lose? Or just the one Harris brother? Yeah, yeah. With it being randomly extra teams in here, it's it's really unclear what that means for tournament rules. Oh, FYI, the Harris brothers were the tag champions before the reset. So they are rewarded for giving up their championships by being tossed in a match with two other people and not placed in tournament properly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, go. Meanwhile, Harlem Heat 2000 fail in their goal to actually beat Sid properly and are put in the tournament. Okay. 
The Harrises charge in, and everybody brawls. The Mamelukes and Harrises overwhelm Luger and Flair at first. The Harrises with some very awkward-looking uh, rib blocks? It's like he does a shoulder block, but with his ribs huh. in the corner. It's a really strange spot. That is weird. Luger and Flair power back. Luger fights the Harrises outside, and Flair gets the figure four on Johnny, but suddenly breaks on his own for unclear reasons, and eats a veto sidekick. The New Blood wear Flair down, including the worst double big boot of all time yeah, by the Harrises. It's very, very bad. It's so, like, it barely makes contact. That gets a couple undeserved two counts. Luger tries to help, but inadvertently distracts the ref, though it actually looks like Luger has to remind the ref to usher him out at one point. <laughs> Flair flop, Flair karma, but Flair dodges some elbow drops. Credit to a Harris for actually really going for those. They looked good. That's true, yeah. And makes the tag to Luger. But the ref misses the tag and sends Luger back out, and the New Blood continue beating Flair down. The Harrises kind of wander in and out without doing anything at one point. It's a weird bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Suddenly, Disco is kidnapped by two mobster-looking guys distracting the Mamelukes, and the Harrises argue with them, I guess about their distraction? The Harrises and Mamelukes brawl, and Flair dramatically tags Luger, who runs wild with clotheslines and a diving forearm. Flair joins the brawl. Funny bit as Vito goes up top, but Luger just calmly watches the whole time, then slugs him in the gut, obviously, on the jump. Yeah. <laughs> Johnny gets a nice, but kind of slow, top rope rebound flying clothesline for two. Luger has to stand there looking shocked for just a bit too long. Yeah, because he does this thing where he runs, jumps to the top in one jump, which is impressive, don't be wrong. But then he has to sort of shuffle around, face the other direction. Right, yeah. If he had been able to jump up there and jump back really quickly, sort of rotate while he's jumping That's, backwards, yeah. that would have worked. Yeah, then it would have worked, yeah. Vito gets to the apron, and Johnny tries to whip Luger at him, but Luger reverses and Johnny crashes into Vito. Luger scoops Johnny up in the torture rack for the submission and the win. Flair comes in and hugs Luger, and Team Package celebrates in the ring as Tony builds up their victory over two teams. Thoughts on this one? Chaotic, punch-filled match. <laughs> There's a lot of punching, a lot of just hitting, and not really... If you're watching a match for, like, suplexes and holds and that kind of stuff, this is not really not the match for you. Yeah. It kind of works in the sense that this and another match we'll see with Flair and Luger later. They definitely try to give us sort of an old-school tag team match feel with the ref missing the tag and all that stuff. The problem is they're kind of fighting against the sort of new-school, constant cheating, brawling mentality that clearly... Vito and Johnny and the Harris brothers were sort of taught to do. Mm -hmm. So it's not doesn't quite work because they're not in on the idea. Yeah. So it's a fairly effective, but a bit of mesh of styles that doesn't quite go together. Obviously, it's good to see Flair and Luger win because they, being the Millionaire's Club, obviously they didn't make it to the finals for this kind of thing. Otherwise, this whole tournament has all this drama. Right, yeah. You, you pretty much have to have them reach the finals at least. Yeah. I, I found this entirely a mess. Oh, great. The four-on-two gimmick used constantly makes this just basically a big punchy-kicky brawl, with only the slightest pauses for any actual wrestling moves. The timing seems off on quite a few of the moves, so it looks sloppy besides. 
with no sense of order or any plot besides the basic idea of 4 versus 2, it just becomes really hard to follow, made worse by some very poorly timed camera cuts at important moments and the outside mafia shenanigans. They did have energy, but energy alone does not make a great opener. Agreed, yeah. I think it would have worked better if the idea was the Harris Brothers were just also in the match, so it was like a three-team match. Mm-hmm. So you could have done the heels work together, then once they go for a pin, they all start fighting thing. It'd make more sense why they start brawling. Yes. Where in this, it's like, wait, you guys are all one team, apparently. Why are you fighting? Yeah, right? Yeah. It's bizarre. They had an like, idea for beginning, like, what if there's four and two in the ending? Well, obviously, Flair and they go in, they didn't quite fool the middle in properly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We cut backstage where Mean Gene is with Mike Awesome. Mike Awesome, we have just learned that tonight you're going to be the surprise eighth man in the U.S. title tournament. First round opponent, Ernest the Cat Miller. Yeah, you did right and you know what they say cats got nine lives well that's good because i plan on taking those nine lives and beat the hell out of each and every one of them and they also say ernest the cat miller is a master of karate judo taibo cabo whatever the hell bow you want to call it where did you get this jabroni man jeez hey who the hell are you calling jabroni i'm trying to conduct business here so once you get the hell off my set who are you talking to Awesome slugs Bam Bam from behind as he goes to leave and beats him up. Get my charity in here! Yeah, that's right. I was talking to you, Bam Bam. And don't you forget it, I I was talking to you. Oddly, Awesome's cadence here really reminded me strongly of Hacksaw Jim Duggan. Yeah, I kinda hear that, yeah. Yeah. Either that or um shoot, what's the one guy from the Freebirds? Michael Hayes, yeah. Yeah, a little bit of Michael Hayes, too, for some of his promos. This was, I thought, developing into kind of an okay-ish promo, at least, despite some odd wording at times. Sure, yeah. But, of course, it was cut short because a Russo show assumes that if we hear someone talk for more than four sentences, our brains will melt, and we need action now. So, nothing notable here, ultimately. Also worth noting that on the Thunder before this show... Bam and Bigelow turned heel, joining the New Blood by attacking DDP. So here he is, randomly feuding with another guy who's also in the New Blood. Yes. Just because. I guess you figure it's a big faction, they don't all get along. But yeah, yeah, they maybe do that a little bit too much tonight. A bit, they're kind of dumb. Yeah. It's good as you see Awesome speak, at least, because he didn't get a lot of awesome promos in general. And yes, the pun was actually intentional. Yeah, yeah. At the very least, every promo of his is an awesome promo. That's right. <laughs> we cut to a quick video package setting up the upcoming Jimmy Hart versus Man Cow match. Which is second for some reason in this show. Hi, my name is Man Cow. I have a number one radio show in Chicago. Hulk Hogan is the biggest wrestler there's ever been, and I think he could do a little better than you. Some clown in a stupid little jacket. You think you're the next Howard Stern? Well, baby, you're not. Jimmy Hart yapping in my ear and he sucker punched me and hurt my eye. I like Jimmy Hart. That is bull. For revenge for my eyeball, Jimmy Hart. Eye for an eye, spring stampede, you jack. Uh, hopefully, Mancow knows the same therapist that uh, Scotty Riggs because he got over his eye injury and 
really, you know, fell in love with himself. So hopefully that worked out. Yeah, yeah. Body positivity, man cow. Yeah. I was like, being that, okay, I get you're mad, like someone injures your eye, totally. But it's like, you also run a radio show. You're probably not affected that much by it. Reading, but yeah. Yeah, I didn't seem like the scripted kind of guy. <laughs> a little bit I've seen of him. So our second match is Jimmy Hart, accompanied by Emery Hale, versus Matthew Mancow Muller with Al Roker Jr., Big Turd, and The Freak. The referee for this match is Slick Johnson. Hart comes out, accompanied by Emery Hale. Hart is wearing a Howard Stern shirt and a Hale jacket. Shouldn't Hale be wearing a Jimmy Hart jacket in this case? Hart's the competitor. True, yeah. The jacket shows Hale breathing fire, but he should really have frost breath, given his name. Hart gets a microphone and says, after this match, he's still going to be the greatest manager, and Mancow will still be a Howard Stern wannabe. Mancow comes out wearing a trench coat and big shades to his own show's theme, accompanied by several unnamed ladies and several other characters from his show. Tony actually lists the characters as Al Roker Jr., Turd, and Brian the Whipping Boy, so I'm not sure which is correct. I didn't find the latter on Mancow's wiki page, but that's as far as my knowledge of his show goes, so Tony may well be right. Mancow also gets a microphone and, swearing profusely, thanks Bischoff for the chance to avenge his honor. So, who who is the good guy here? Uh... Because Mancow is the Chicago local, and he does get cheers from the yeah. hometown crowd, but he also thanks Eric Bischoff, who's a bad guy, right. for setting up the match. And Hart is acting heelish and getting booed, but he's also pals with Hogan, who is clearly a good guy on this show. Yeah, that's true. That's, that's all true. It's, it's all kind of backwards. A bit. <laughs> it is indeed. They roll around punching each other like a couple angry third graders fighting over who gets the last available swing. Hale distracts Mancow, and Hart punches Mancow in the balls. Madden jokes that he's surprised that hurt Mancow, and Hudson bizarrely misunderstands the joke, wondering why it would hurt Mancow if he's a cow. He's, he's not a cow, Hudson. H- huh? <laughs> the commentators claim that Hart has learned from the wrestlers he has managed— which is an insult to every wrestler that he's ever managed. <laughs> it's very true, yeah. Hart falls on Mancow for a slam, and someone, Hudson, I think, claims it was almost a Lama Straw cradle. Just, just, what? The, seriously, what the heck? <laughs> Hart does one of the worst top rope splashes ever, clearly landing knees first. Mancow uses the ref to block. Hale flings Mancow over the ropes onto his entourage. Credit to Mancow, at least, for being willing to do that. Yeah. Hart sends Hale away and goes to revive Johnson. But Mancow's entourage gives him a chair, and Mancow hits Hart with it and sloppily pins him for the three count and the win. Mancow and his pals celebrate, but disappear as Kidman comes down. Kidman beats the heck out of Jimmy Hart and yells at him. The commentators say he's sent a message to Hulk Hogan. Thoughts on this one? It's very ugly. Very, very ugly. I mean, it's a manager at this point is like, I think around 50. Yeah. Who never really wrestled outside of the sort of matches where the heel manager is sort of forced to tag with his team. I, I can't even like name it to me her match up top of my head. Yeah, I don't know that he's ever had to do offense before at all. That's true. Yeah. Mankow is a guy that dislikes watching wrestling, which doesn't make you 
a wrestler. Believe me, I, I know this <laughs> for a fact. But yeah, the one positive I can take from this is that Hale does that press slam to Mankow and his people, which is kind of nice. Yeah, they actually do that spot very well. His guys catch him quite well as well. They do, yeah. Does them nice and center and land very well, yeah. That's all I can really praise for this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, as you said, credit to Mankow for being willing to take the throw to the outside, but that is all I can compliment as well. This was a truly abysmal farce with completely mixed up heel and face roles. It's completely awful. Let's move on. Agreed. I have some bad news for you, Bob. There's a rematch. Are you kidding me? Not kidding. (sighs) WCW Mayhem 2000. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. Oh, geez. That's wow. Yeah. And that show was in in November, by the way. They, well, I guess they wait till they're back around. Back in Chicago, presumably. Yeah. But still, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah. I can't believe they did this twice. Yeah. I was like, I I remember something happening with Bankow leaving the ring. I didn't see it. So I'm like, did I miss it? I'm like, oh, that's the other time, you know, he appears a second time on the show. That is horrible. Yeah. According to Bischoff on his podcast, like in the clip of it, he says the match isn't as bad as he thought it'd be, which I don't know what he expected. Clearly, if that's the case. And he said he expects someone to self-immolate in the ring. (laughs) Yes. Like they'd lock up and just explode, I guess. Yeah. And he says that Mankow helped you promote the show locally, so that helped, but... Not that much. You didn't fill the arena. Also true. Maybe maybe the extra, like, 200 people they that actually bought tickets for from him. <laughs> maybe he's the entire reason that they sold any tickets at all. That very was... possible, yeah. But, I mean, you could have just had him as, like, the guest host for the show or something. Mm-hmm. Put it. You need to have him wrestle a match against Jimmy Hart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you're going to do this stupid nonsense, have him find a wrestler he likes and have them wrestle Hale for like two minutes. Yeah. It wouldn't you be can still great. have him, you know, lunge into the ring and get in Hale's face and get chucked out if he yeah. really wants to do that spot. But yeah, don't have a manager versus a radio personality. Yeah, I agree. As your match. Uh huh. And again, the second match on an all tournament show. Yeah. Put it like sixth or seventh or maybe eighth on the show. Just about in the time that people start, you know, feeling like they need to go use the restroom or yeah. go get snacks and stuff. At the yeah. very least, it's a it's a break from the here's our big tournaments. Yeah. Kind of yeah. Thing. Yeah. Exactly. Backstage, Russo yells at the Harrises and the Mamelukes about wasting opportunities, calls them losers, and throws a tantrum with his baseball bat. Our third match is The Wall versus Scott Steiner in a WCW United States Heavyweight Championship Tournament quarterfinal match. Referee for this one, again, is Slick Johnson. It didn't hurt that bad getting hit by Jimmy Hart, I guess. No, not really. The Wall's entrance video constantly shows him in a suit and sunglasses, so of course he comes out in generic black jeans and a black muscled shirt outfit. Yeah. Couldn't update the video at all, guys? Elvis features this famous moment where... He decided to confront Hulk Hogan at one of the spring break shows, I believe it is, from the year before. And Hogan sees him, even though he's in a building oh, across right. the That's street. That's the wall, brother! That's in the video package like three times. Hulk Hogan has eagle eyes. Yeah. The wall is like standing on top of like a 20-story building, pointing ahead with a spotlight put on him while Hogan's in the ring. <laughs> Steiner comes out to Steinerized, even though there's no sign of Rick. Yeah. 
Steiner's rip-off Superman logos have become circles now, so I guess they may have heard from DC over the last year. Yes. A guy in the crowd has a sign reading, R.I.P. Andre the Giant. Very nice, but he died in 1993. Did you just now hear? Yeah, he's been in a living in a cave. I guess so. Why else would he pay to go to the show? Fair, fair. (laughs) Maybe he thought that uh, Paul White actually was Andre, and now that Paul White's gone, he thinks that's when Andre passed. Because he only knows about WCW. That could be. Both of these guys are New Blood, as the only non-New Blood wrestler in the entire United States tourney is Sting. They trade off doing basic strikes until Steiner punches Wall in the nuts and belly-to-belly suplexes him. Wall resists a German suplex and gets revenge, slugging Steiner in the nuts, and gets two off a respectable leg drop. Mm-hmm. Double-handed choke slam, and Wall makes good crazy eyes. Steiner drops Wall in the ropes, and they both roll out. Wall does a barricade whip, and Hudson claims he almost threw Steiner into Lake Michigan. What? Uh-huh. I mean, really, that's the move you choose to overemphasize? A barricade whip? Really? That is a little weird, yeah. Wall sets up a table, but Steiner attacks. Wall resists a suplex and sets for a choke slam through the table, but Steiner gouges his eyes and pushes Johnson in the way, so Wall accidentally chokeslams Johnson through the table. I'm pretty sure you could tell the difference between super muscular Scott Steiner and a ref by touch alone, man. Mm-hmm. Billy Silverman runs down to replace Johnson and disqualifies Wall, awarding Steiner the win. Angry, Wall gets in, but Billy Silverman scampers away and sprints off down the ramp faster than I have ever seen him move. Yes. As Wall gives chase. Nick Patrick, Charles Robinson, and Mickey J come down to check on Johnson while Steiner celebrates. Thoughts on this one? It's decent at the first bit of it, at least. There's a certain draw of these two big, scary-looking guys fighting each other. Yeah, hoss fighters like to like to say. There's not a lot of depth to this, obviously, and it's very short before they get to the bizarrely stupid finish. Mm-hmm. So aside from the fact that Scott Steiner is not the same body mass as the referee, he's also wearing a shirt. Yeah, yeah, the ref has a ref shirt on, which you would probably brush against the collar because yeah. it's a collared shirt. Steiner is obviously not. <laughs> so. Yes. so I get the idea... Wall is being pushed as this big star, in theory, so they don't want to have him lose. Mm-hmm. But what a stupid way to do it. Yeah, it's it's really dumb. Is this dumber than the powerbomb match finish between Sid Vicious and Kevin Nash? No. Okay, just, just trying to no, get a baseline. That, that one is still a person saying he won the match and the referee believing him. This one, at least someone... Even if it's a dumb reason, someone does do something clearly DQ-worthy. Okay, so, like, if Scott Steiner had punched the ref, and then set him on, like, a bunch of table debris, and then said the wall chokeslammed him, that'd be... That would be... Yeah, okay. That, that okay. would actually exceed the powerbomb match. Because the, right? the ref somehow has to be not watching what's happening, and just believe that based on evidence. Okay. Right, yeah. Okay, just want to set a baseline for stupid. <laughs> yes. We need it on a show like this. So, okay. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought this was a pretty basic match. Steiner and Wall just kind of traded strikes. They hit one or two wrestling moves, and then they moved right to the finish. It's only four minutes long, and they're not cruiserweights, so I'm not sure there's a lot more we would have gotten out of them. At least Steiner did keep things moving. The crowd was cheering him, which meant he didn't have a good excuse to go yell at them. Mm -hmm. But it was too simple and too short to be of note, and then had a really dumb ending. Yeah. I don't know if they could have had a much better match if they had a few more minutes and not this finish. 
I feel like they could have, but I don't know what like the level would have been. Yeah, I, I've seen some of the other wall matches, and I'm not sure that there's a good chance at it. But if anyone could do it, honestly, Scott Steiner's a pretty good guy for him to work with. Because yeah. whether you want to or not, he can suplex you. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> AJ Styles can attest to that, yes. We go backstage, where Mean Gene is now with Ernest the Cat Miller. Did somebody call his mama? Old man, if I steal your woman. Ernest the Cat Miller, if I may, Mike Awesome, we found out, is going to be your oh, first round. Do stop that right now. They what? told me James Brown was going to be here, and I want James Brown. James Brown's not going to be your opponent. Mike Awesome is the I name. I don't give Kenny dance. Hell no. I tell you what, that's just like WCW, the biggest redneck company in the world, to go get another big redneck to try to do his dirty work. But you, your old hey, nobody awesome. knew. Hey, hey, get out of here. Taylor, this is your fault. Hang on a second, man. Bam Bam Bigelow suddenly attacks during Cat's promo and beats him up. There's nothing to this. Cat won't even discuss his opponent. It just exists to let Bam Bam attack Cat. Yeah. Our fourth match is Mike Awesome versus Ernest the Cat Miller in a WCW United States Heavyweight Championship Tournament quarterfinal match. Referee for this one is Mickey J. Awesome is out first. Tony notes this is Awesome's first official match for WCW. And we see a clip of Awesome beating up Kevin Nash on the prior Monday Nitro. Suddenly, Bam Bam Bigelow runs out and grabs Awesome as he climbs up the apron. The bell rings, so I guess... Our fourth match is Mike Awesome versus Bam Bam Bigelow in a WCW United States Heavyweight Championship Tournament quarterfinal match. Referee for this one is Mickey J. <laughs> yes. I didn't know that you could qualify for a tournament spot just by beating up the actual entrant backstage. Evidently so. Good to know. Yeah. Bigelow runs Awesome into the post and barricade, but in the ring, Awesome hits a gentle big boot, clotheslines Bigelow out, and dives onto him. Normally, I'd say it was pretty early for that, but this match is going like four minutes, so fair enough. Yeah. Bigelow runs Awesome into the barricade, and Awesome warns a fan near the barricade to move before Bigelow charges, and Awesome dumps him over the barricade into the seats. Okay, I'm glad you caught that, too. I was wondering, did Bob notice him clearly talking to the guy, like, hey, you should yeah, move out of the way? Get out of the way. Get out of the way. Yeah. It's pretty great. Yeah, because that would have been lethal. Yes. <laughs> awesome dives over the barricade onto Bigelow. Back in, Awesome flying clothesline gets two. There's a rare, good Madden line. He describes Awesome as combining cruiserweight style with heavyweight power. I think that's very accurate. It is very accurate, yeah. Bigelow falls on top on an Awesome suplex for two and builds to the greetings from Asbury Park. But Cat suddenly springs into the ring and sidekicks him out, so apparently... Our fourth match <laughs> is Mike Awesome versus Ernest the Cat Miller in a WCW United States Heavyweight Championship Tournament quarterfinal match. Referee for this match is Mickey J. <laughs> Cat shows off with rapid kicks, grabs a microphone, and says that he beat everyone in the ring. He dances, briefly selling pain from the backstage beatdown in a nice touch. Yeah. Awesome clotheslines him down and hits a great top rope frog splash for the three count and the win. Awesome celebrates and tells us he's the best. Thoughts on these ones? <laughs> these thatches? Yeah. Okay, so separating the, the two parts. I thought Awesome and Bigelow worked well together. Obviously, they will work together again, as we note, in Starcade 2000, in the ambulance match. So this is sort of precursor to that, although it's WCW, so they probably forgot the single happened when they booked the match mm -hmm. months later. So it's very, it could be a coincidence. 
I don't know if they ever worked together in ECW, but they definitely have that shared connection. Yeah. I kind of wish they could have a longer match, because I think they could do some really good, and again, they, they do later in the year have a pretty good match, I thought. Then you have the Ernest Miller part where he comes back in, decides to dance after doing like two kicks, and then immediately loses. Yes. I liked Austin in it. Mm-hmm. Good in that. Awesome provided a good, high-energy performance that perfectly suited the short time frame he was going to be given here. Yes. But unfortunately, he was saddled with one of the stupidest, most confusing match setups in recent memory. Yes. Seriously, WCW, you pull this with the guy's first official match? Uh-huh. In any kind of reasonable sporting event, you don't get to insert yourself into a tournament by knocking out the actual participant backstage and coming out in his place. Why would the ref accept that? Why would he let the bell ring to start the match? Uh-huh. Yeah. And if he did, why would he then just turn around and accept the original guy coming out to replace the new guy? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> These are all good questions. This makes absolutely no sense at all. It is a massive disservice to all three men. Poor Cat, especially, who gets beaten down in two moves. True, yeah. Good performances, actually, from, from all of them for what they were given, but... Awful concept. Awful, awful concept. Yeah, they paid a good six, probably close to seven figures to sign Mike Awesome. Oh my gosh. Because they paid him a bonus to leave while champion. And he can be worth it. Like, I think the guy's guy's good. Very. But you're wasting him here. Yeah. The idea that this is his first official match, and it's this screwed up, confusing disaster. Uh Uh-huh. Like... Oh, and and none of this is on the performers. No, no. None of this is on the performers. We cut backstage, where Bischoff is still worried, knocking his head against the wall. Russo tells him to calm down, and Bischoff criticizes Kidman for making out with Tori Wilson instead of taking care of the Hogan situation. Kidman says he did take care of it, sending a message with Jimmy Hart, but Bischoff says that handled nothing. In fact, if Hogan wasn't coming, he definitely will come now. Russo tells Bischoff to relax, looking amused by the whole situation. I thought Bischoff actually was doing a great job with this, and actually throughout the night on this storyline, he does a good job looking seriously on edge the whole time. Yeah, absolutely. It's some genuinely good acting from him. Yeah. And in Kidman's defense, if you have one option is make out with Tori Wilson, doesn't matter what the second option is. (laughs) I mean, what what are you going to pick? We cut to Mean Gene, who is with Shane Douglas, Buff Bagwell, and Buff Bagwell's ridiculous hat. Yes. <laughs> Buff Bagwell, the franchise Shane Douglas. Gentlemen, the winner of your match with the Harlem Heat will be going on to the finals of the WCW Tag Team Tournament as you face Team Packing. It's real simple, Mean Gene. Harlem Heat is just a little roadblock for the new blood. It's a new day at WCW. It's a new time, and it's all about the new blood. And you're looking right at it. Just think about it. Franchise and Buff Daddy. You figure it out. Nature Boy, Ric Flair, Space Mountain is officially closed as of tonight. That limo-riding, jet-flying, son-of-a-gun bullshit is over. Good riddance. We are the future. We are the new blood, and our time is now. Wow. Oh, look. Shane Douglas hates Ric Flair. What a surprise. I am shocked. This was short, but... It did have personality, and I like that they managed to address both their current match and one of their future opponents if they won against the Heat. True, yeah. 
They could stand to say new blood several hundred fewer times, though. Yeah. <laughs> and again, going back to earlier, how long has St. Nuggets been in and around this company? Yeah, yeah. He was definitely at Starcade 92, I believe, mm-hmm. with uh, Ricky Steamboat, correct? Yes. Yeah. So he's been in wrestling at the very least for a long time. He at least has the fair argument of having very recently returned to the company. Right. So at least maybe with him. Yeah. But Buff Bagwell has been in the company since at least 1991, I believe. Steadily, yeah. Yes, steadily in the company, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because Shane goes back even further. Shane comes in with the Demic Dudes. Right, yes. Yeah, it's kind of ludicrous that either of these guys is new blood, but as I said, Douglas at least kind of has the argument of, I have recently returned. Right. That was never a great promo, but he's usually energetic, and this is one of those cases. Not that Halloween 2000 is a good team, as we'll see, but... It definitely kind of serves to just push them aside like that. But he is a heel, so it kind of makes sense he'd be a bit dismissive of it. And they've got like 30 seconds to do their promo. No, yeah, true. Booking this thing, so you can't address anything in the promo for long. (laughs) That's very true, yeah. Our fifth match is Harlem Heat 2000. That's Stevie Ray and Big T with Jay Biggs and Cash versus Buff Bagwell and Shane Douglas. The referee for this one is Billy Silverman. They did a whole angle earlier in the year where Stevie Ray turned on Booker T. They brought in Jay Biggs, who was playing basically the same character as a fake lawyer in WBF. Oh, okay. Under Russo. He was a lawyer behind the Nation of Domination. Oh, I thought I recognized his voice. They sued Booker T over the rights to Harlem Heat, so he couldn't wear his cool flame tights, Mm -hmm. couldn't uh, use the entrance music. And couldn't even call Booker T, because they claim they own that. They claim they own the letter T, basically. They That's, do, yes. Yeah, I, I'm not sure how you can make a copyright claim on the letter T, but apparently they, they could. Yeah. yeah. Which, uh, Jay, Jay Biggs, good lawyer. He's a very good lawyer, <laughs> apparently, yeah. Yeah, it comes down to a match with Booker T versus Big T, which is Ahmed Johnson, who came from WBF, mm-hmm. like Vince Russo. Booker would lose, so at this point he's just Booker, but he's gotten... Better fill in music. He, they technically gave him really goofy fill in music for one show to go. Look at what power we have over you. They just gave him better fill in music now. Yeah, it's, it's it's a decent tune now. Yeah, yeah. It was like it was like the Leave It to Beaver thing they gave him. I think oh, as okay. a joke on one show. By the way, I I promise I will accidentally call him Booker T for the duration of this show. Oh, it's fine. <laughs> Big T is appropriately named. As you mentioned, he used to be in the WWF as Ahmed Johnson. He's not in quite as good a shape as he was then. That's generous, yes. But he is actually still a big, tough-looking dude. My problem, though, is that they also have Cash, who is even bigger than both of them. Yes, yes, they do. So, it's like, you have Stevie Ray, Big T, and Bigger T, I guess. (laughs) Oddly, Stevie has his name written across the back of his tights, but Big T doesn't. Maybe Stevie's secretly hoping that Booker's going to come back so he doesn't want to make it official. Oh, yeah. Could be. Should have just made some tights, but had just the T written on them. So he could, like, fill in Big or Booker, depending on which one came in. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Cash, following both, as you noted, is an even bigger, bulkier dude whose arms are so huge he cannot comfortably rest them at his sides. Correct. And walks to the ring with his arms hanging out a little bit. (laughs) Yes, he does. Oh, girl. Yeah, he was... Brought in earlier in 99 as part of the No Limit Soldiers. And Angle, we will definitely cover when it comes Oh, God. Douglas's music remains great, 
and he continues to do absolutely nothing cool in his entrance to go with it. Yes. Bagwell, meanwhile, lives it up and dances around, then does finger guns to his pyro. How did these two get paired up? (laughs) Yeah. As they said, you figure it out. (laughs) Douglas and Bagwell charge, and everybody brawls until Silverman gets Bagwell and Big T to take their places on the apron. Douglas almost immediately tags out to Bagwell, who does well against Stevie until Big T sneaks in a tag and spinebusters Bagwell. Stevie leg drop before he's ushered out, but Bagwell gets an elbow up on a Big T charge and hits a second rope corner splash for two. Then both guys crawl for the tag like they've been fighting for ages. Yes, they do. Tag to Stevie, but Bagwell tags Douglas, who runs wild with punches until the Heat no-sell a double knock-and-knocker, and show the Harrises how a double big boot is actually done. Mm-hmm. It's much better. It is, yes. Outside, Cash beats up Bagwell. Silverman tries to usher Stevie to the apron, though I think Stevie was legal. Think so. So Mrs. Douglas booting Big T in the little T. <laughs> Stevie turns, and Douglas hits the Pittsburgh plunge, a fisherman's buster, on him for the three count and the win. Cash angrily runs in, but Douglas slides out and gives a recovered Bagwell a hug. Tony says that wasn't the Pittsburgh plunge, but a vertical suplex, but it looked like a fisherman's buster, or at least fisherman's suplex to me, so splitting hairs a little. Yeah. They're trying to push like he has a new finisher, but that's like not till later. Oh, okay. Because he does have a new... I think he does it at Slamboree. If I remember correctly, Maybe. I, I blocked a little of that out, to be honest with you. <laughs> yes. Big T and Stevie Ray argue, but Jay Biggs and Cash make peace. Madden claims he grew up with Harlem Heat. According to Wikipedia, at least, Stevie Ray grew up in Texas, Big T in Florida, and Madden in Pennsylvania. So, uh, no. Long-distance friendship, I guess? Like, before the internet? Probably not. (laughs) They were pen pals. Yeah, correspondence. Yeah, exactly. Thoughts on this one? I mean, it's pretty nothing. Like you said, they work the match like they worked like a 15-minute match Mm -hmm. in this really condensed timeline. Like, it's a bit where it's not super terrible, but, like, Buff Bagwell hits TV Ray and runs off the ropes and comes back. TV Ray just sort of stands there the whole time like he's been fighting for five minutes and just, like, recovering his breath. Yeah. He has to wait for him to run, bounce off the rope, come back, and do a swing neckbreaker. <laughs> the move is good. It's just, it doesn't make any sense that he's so stunned already. My problem is, for better or for worse, Harlem Heat 2000 looks really bad in this match. Mm-hmm. They also have their manager on their side cheating for them, taking out half their opponents, and they still lose. Yeah, yeah. It's a thing that would work if it was indeed the end of a, like a 15-20 minute match or something like that. Yeah. And you just have the fired up babyface finally fights back against them, but you actually have the accumulated injuries of an entire match to explain why they actually go down. Yeah. But with it being, uh, I believe I have it recorded as 2 minutes and 40 seconds. I did time it. Oh, okay. Yeah. It's about two minutes and 40 seconds long. They do the double crawl for the tag, in fact, Uh at a minute and a half. Wow. They're selling like Bagwell's been the face in peril for like five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes. It's a minute and a half into the match. He's taken like two moves. Yeah. How bad is your cardio if that's that's where you're at at this point? Yeah. It's not good. Yeah. It basically feels like they took a normal tag match formula and just massively, massively compressed it to the point of being ludicrous. Yeah. At the same time, that does mean it actually does have a plot. Yeah. Which puts it a leg up on some of the other matches tonight. That's fair, yeah. 
I felt like the action was fine. It's just so short. I didn't really have a chance to decide if I was enjoying it before it was just done. Yeah. And is there a face heal dynamic in this match at all? <sighs> like, if anything, maybe Bagwell and Douglas are kind of sort of faces. Because yeah. the, the other team's doing more cheating. Yes. But, I mean, again, you have two minutes and 40 seconds, so unless someone grabs a chair and just goes to town, you're not really going to be able to do any kind of face heel dynamic either. <laughs> yeah, but from the get-go, though, no, none of them is really a face. Right, yeah, all of them are part of the heel faction. Yeah. Yeah, yeah there's this another match we'll cover later that they aren't, like, really terrible, but it's hard as an outside fan to care who wins or loses the match because they're both bad guys. Right, yeah. Does it, ma- does it matter to me, really, who wins? Yeah, the crowd in most of the New Blood versus New Blood matches, the crowd kind of seems to elect to take one of the competitors as a face. Yeah. Like Steiner in his matches leading up to his final match tonight, Steiner's taken as a face by the crowd. True, yeah. Which is part of why we don't get stalling Steiner for those matches, I think. (laughs) That's a positive, yeah. Yeah. Back to Mean Gene, who is with Booker T. Or Booker, sorry. (laughs) I thank you very much, Booker T. I should point out tonight, very crucial, this United States title tournament. Your match is coming up with Sting, a very important hurdle for you that you must climb. You know, Gene, if anybody has fought for opportunity in this company, it's me. And as far as the New Bloods go, yeah, we're on the same page as far as opportunity goes around here. But that's about it. You know, Bischoff, he's all on my back about what I did last Monday night. Well, me and Bischoff, we ain't never seen eye to eye on anything. But tonight, Gene, I got business. I got the stinger. For, again, a very short promo, I thought this was actually terrific. Yeah, it was good. Succinct. In a few short sentences, Booker quickly gets across his ambition, his disagreements with the New Blood, and his focus on his current match. Given a bit more time, this could have been even better by delving a bit more deeply into each of those things. But considering he had, I don't know, 15 or 20 seconds mm-hmm. to talk, Booker did an incredible job and came off like a huge star. Yeah, it's a good bullet point promo, which is always given time for you. Total promo time, including Mean Gene asking the question, 32 seconds. Oh, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> so our sixth match is Booker T. Dang it. Booker? To be fair, even uh, Oakland says... Yeah, I think he says... Yeah, okay, okay. You know, Booker T. Our sixth match is Booker T versus Sting in a WCW United States Championship Tournament quarterfinal match. Referee for this one is Mickey J. As Booker T makes his entrance, the commentators discuss the tension between him and the New Blood, and also mention that his opponent, Sting, is the only member of the rival Millionaires Club faction in the United States Tournament. We're in a hurry, so Sting's entrance music just starts on the fast part instead of slowly building to it. <laughs> He's still got that great trench coat with the like Mortal Kombat-style scorpion on the yeah, back. Yeah. Someone in the crowd holds up a Sting sign, but the Sting face they've drawn looks rather like it was flattened out by a steamroller. <laughs> Not particularly flattering. No, no. They square off in the middle of the ring and talk, until Sting shoves Booker. Booker keeps his cool. Sting gets the better of an early exchange with a hip toss, and gives a stinger call, but Booker lands multiple strikes, only for Sting to slam him and clothesline him out of the ring. Sting follows and reverses a Booker whip into the barricade. Booker runs right into an unfortunate cameraman. You can catch Sting getting a little chuckle out of that. Yeah. <laughs> Sting smashes Booker into the commentary table, but Booker flapjacks him onto it. Back in, 
Booker back elbow earns two, and he excellently nails Sting with a fake-out clothesline into a knee strike, then clubs Sting down for two. Hudson says, it's Sting with a hard right hand to the back of Sting's head. Sting's his own worst enemy. After last year, I I sympathize. (laughs) Yeah. Booker earns more two counts with a knee drop and a jumping axe kick, as the commentators claim he's hit Sting with everything he has when he hasn't even used most of his signature spots. Yeah. Sting counters a Harlem sidekick with a DDT, as Hudson claims he's used everything too, moments before Sting proves him wrong with a stinger splash. (laughs) Booker counters another in mid-air with the Harlem sidekick. Beautiful. Mm -hmm. Sting dodges a clothesline and crossbodies Booker for two, but Booker floats over a suplex, only for Sting to return the favor and hit the Scorpion Death Drop for the three count and the win. Sting celebrates with a stinger call and leaves, but Booker chases him down, beckoning him back to the ring. Sting gets in, and they stare each other down, but Booker extends a fist, and Sting gives him a fist bump and leaves for real. Thoughts on this one? I thought this was a pretty good match. Like a lot of the show, it has done with no time to do anything. It's a real condensed match, which is a shame because it's two really good wrestlers working together. And with the kind of interdynamic where one is definitely a face, and one is aligned with bad guys, but still trying to Try, try not to lose himself, basically, yeah. is the idea. Yeah, Booker does nothing actually heelish during the match. Yeah. He's just aligned with the New Blood because he shares their goal. Yeah. But you get a good feeling of tension from him about wanting to remain who he is, like you put it. Yeah, exactly. For the most part, they, they work really well together. They seem pretty well in sync. There's some un- uneven bits here and there, but nothing like really badly botched or anything. The ending is good, but it definitely feels kind of abrupt. Mm-hmm. It's not like Booker was going for like a big move and is countered into the death drop like is often done. So it's weird that it's just a normal transition move like suplex is set up for the finish. I like that it's a double counter, though I thought that was cool. Yeah. That Booker does the float over, then Sting does the float over into the death drop. Yeah, it's well done. It's just it's not the drama you expect it to have. Mm-hmm. It's a strong TV match, but it's they don't have quite the extra element to the match and the story that you'd want for a match you show you're paying for like this okay they gave these guys a little more actual time than some of the other matches and they made an actual match out of it it still felt like it was on fast forward the listed match time is about six minutes 34 seconds Mm -hmm. but that's way better than two minutes 40 that our last one was agreed yeah but they managed to get in a variety of action do some actual selling, and put in some clever ideas and nice counter-sequences to make a fun contest. To me, it felt like an actual full-fledged, pay-per-view-worthy match just done quickly. So, kudos to Sting and Booker T for this. Nice post-match storytelling with the defeated Booker still showing respect to his opponent, too. It left Booker in an interesting place with the new blood. Mm -hmm. The only mark against this in my book is Hudson and Madden's commentary. They keep acting like we are watching an hour-long feud-ending epic, and repeatedly laughably claim the guys have thrown everything they can at each other, when they clearly still have several of their favorite moves left. It cheapens a good match. Yeah, because I don't think Booker even... Does Booker even go to the top rope at all? He never goes to the top rope, yeah. He never does the Harlem hangover at all. Not even, like, stop from doing the move. No, yeah. He hits the Harlem sidekick and the axe kick, but he doesn't do the missile drop kick or the hangover. Mm. So yeah, it cheapens a good match, but it's still a good match. No, it's good. It's just, yeah, again, it's, it's just abrupt and not quite given. They do what they can with it, but yeah, it's yeah. not quite given enough. You give these guys 
10 minutes instead yeah. of six and a half. And they take this exact formula and just expand it a little and it'll be just great. Yep. With these absolutely, two. Yeah. yeah. Agreed. But what we got was still fun. Yeah, that's fine. We go to Mean Gene, who is with Billy Kidman, Eric Bischoff, and Tori Wilson. Tori Wilson, Billy Kidman, and especially you, Eric Bischoff, I get the impression there's tremendous concern that Hulk Hogan might show up here in Chicago tonight. It's a rumor. It's just a rumor. I don't think for a second I'm going to let a stupid rumor rain on my parade. Look, Hogan may be a glory hound, but there's no way in the world he's dumb enough to step into the lion's den. Look, Eric, don't sweat the small stuff. Because if he does show up, he's going to be wheeling himself around in a wheelchair because I crippled his ass on Nitro. So if Brother Man wants to come on down, I'll send him back to the emergency room sucking air through a tube. Bischoff is great here. Doing a perfect act of a guy trying to look confident while he's actually terrified. Mm-hmm. Kidman nicely gets across his overconfidence in return, downplaying the threat so much it's clear he just doesn't understand what he's gotten into. Unfortunately, none of this discusses Kidman's actual next opponent, Vampiro, or the U.S. title tournament that Kidman is involved in. At all. Yeah. Add at least another few seconds to this for Kidman to at least mention that he happens to be in a match tonight, and it'd be quite good, I think. Yeah, say some of Vampiro being part of the new blood, but he's not as good as him or something. <laughs> Bischoff could like gloat about how he's stacking the deck in this. Which that's, that's mentioned a lot by commentators, but never by them, which is... Weird. Yeah, yeah. All the promos need more time tonight, but this yeah. one especially, they only get to address one of the several storylines that they're involved in. That's unfortunate. What's the other thing I was just thinking about? So Jeff Jarrett gets to go right to the main event of the show. Mm-hmm. He's like their golden boy. The chosen yeah. one. Yeah, exactly. But Kidman has to at best wrestle two matches or possibly three, to get the U.S. title. Yeah, yeah. I think they'd, like, bump him ahead somehow. But no, they don't. They don't care about him. They don't They don't actually like you, Kidman. Yeah. Don't worry, he'll learn. Eventually. Probably. Yes. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Our seventh match is Vampiro versus Kidman with Tori Wilson in a WCW United States Championship Tournament quarterfinal match. Referee for this one is Charles Robinson. So this is, again, New Blood versus New Blood. Vampiro is out first, as the commentators discuss Kidman kind of overlooking him in the promo backstage, so at least they took the time to build up what Kidman's actually doing tonight. Kidman and Wilson walk out arm-in-arm. Kidman's entrance video shows him with the white muscle shirt, which he isn't wearing anymore. So, yeah, again, update. Yeah, right? (laughs) Kidman and Wilson share a kiss. Kidman charges, but Vampiro dodges, so he eats turnbuckle. Vampiro lands loads of strikes and hits a flying clothesline for two and nine-tenths. Madden claims Vampiro is so intense, it's like a scene from The Exorcist. How? Yeah, yeah, how? Go explain. (laughs) Kidman slides under a knee strike for a hurricane rana and a dropkick, but Vampiro can powerbomb Kidman. Or at least throw him from powerbomb position. I guess maybe that's why it counts. That's why he tricks him, he throws him instead of trying to drop him. There you go, okay. Belly-to-back suplex, and now Vampiro can't powerbomb Kidman. Mm -hmm. And all is right with the world. Yes. Kidman slingshot leg drop for two, but Vampiro rakes his eyes. Tony calls a Vampiro kick a back leg front kick. He's been possessed by Bischoff. Yes. It is like the exorcist. (laughs) Right? 
Kidman's sidewalk slam earns two, but Vampiro counters the suplex with his own and hits a one-handed choke slam for two. Vampiro actually signals to the crowd for the nail in the coffin, but then goes for a powerbomb instead. But still can't powerbomb Kidman. Duh. I'm not quite sure what happened there. Like, he just forgot the spot or changed his mind. It's very weird. He goes down wrong for the face buster and seems to collide with Kidman's knees. Ooh. It gets two. Outside, Vampiro evidently has never taken a ramp to the steps before and just walks knees first into them. <laughs> Hudson tries to at least cover that as a possible leg injury that could affect his kicks, so Vampiro immediately lands a kick combo for two and a half. <laughs> Poor Hudson. Kidman DDT for two, and Vampiro takes it on his knees. I kind of wonder if he actually did get hit solid by Kidman's knees there, because he then immediately resists taking face bumps. Oh, maybe. Immediately following that twice. <laughs> That's very possible, yeah. Yeah. Suddenly, a Dodge Charger pulls in backstage, and Hogan rushes to the ring, as Vampiro hits a distracted Kidman with a one-handed bulldog, but Kidman punts him in the balls. Hogan charges, and after some brief Kidman punches, beats the crap out of him. Kidman shows Vampiro how you take a face smash to the stairs. Yes. Hogan finishes off with a double-handed chokeslam off the ring steps onto the commentary table, which doesn't break. No. So, poor Kidman falls off onto his neck. Yes. Ow. Yeah. Hogan slams him through the table more fully a second time, and rolls him in, telling Vampiro to pin him. Vampiro obliges for the three count and the win. Tony at least tries to justify that not being a DQ by saying that Hogan hadn't come in to help Vampiro, but normally all that matters is who you hit, not who you intended to help. But beyond that, he did help Vampiro. There, He literally tells him to pin Kidman. Yes. There's a bit where Vampiro seems like he's trying to distract the referee from what's happening. I don't think it's successful, but he's at least trying. Like, he's trying to talk to the referee and, like, point him away while the... The ref's just like, you're Vampiro, you have no personality, I'm not talking to you. Right. (laughs) But Craig Vampiro released trying to cover up for that. Yeah, okay. Hogan comes over and takes Hudson's headset, but is handed a microphone to use instead. He tells Bischoff he hopes he was watching, because he's coming for Bischoff now. Thoughts on this one? That actually was a pretty good match, (laughs) up until the end. They have a good sort of pattern i think they work together pretty well mm-hmm. they have sort of the same energy kidman can speed things up well, obviously we need to and Piro can keep pace pretty well vampiro with someone like kidman can do the power stuff i think realistically yeah that was an interesting part of this match seeing vampiro occasionally wrestle more like a power wrestler yeah much like kidman with ray mysterio last year yes exactly was that last year yeah it was oh. yeah, it was yeah it just seems so good that i can't believe that uh to make a different company put the show on yeah <laughs> But yeah, because I think it's one thing that can work with Kidman, but it can't work with other, other wrestlers. Mm-hmm, yeah. A lot of guys he can't do that realistically with. He has to rely on the kicking, I think, more than anything else. Mm-hmm. The ending is a lot of nonsense. I mean, they stop wrestling when the camera cuts to the back for no apparent reason. Knowing the car is going to get there, apparently. Yeah. Oh, did you spot the Terry Taylor cameo? Um, not at this point. I didn't spot it, but I did spot it later. Terry Taylor is the guy at the gorilla position at the table that Hogan asked where the ring is. Like, oh, okay. they're the ring. Okay. He's the blonde guy with the headset on. Yeah. Because at this point, he's a backstage guy. He should have played like he said. Yeah. Yeah. I think Vampiro realizes anything. You realize that this extended beatdown of Kidman shouldn't count. 
And should he take a disqualified, which honestly would have been funnier if they just had that kind of disqualification. I know it ruins the Vampiro Sting matchup, which is a problem. Yeah. But he kind of came in like laid out and then the next guy's match against Kidman is now he sort of walks out and just pins him. That would be kind of fun. Just literally have for the next four matches, Kidman lying there in the shattered remnants of the commentator's table. And then it comes to his next match. The guy picks him up, carries him to the ring, sets him down and pins him. Yeah, right. <laughs> go go whole hog with it. Right? Yeah. The big problem, as we said before, though, this is New Blood versus New Blood. I don't really care in storyline who wins. Mm-hmm. I don't either of them's event because I'm the fan at home or in the arena that wants to see Sting win. I don't want to see either one of these guys. Well, and, and, and again, like you could have made it interesting too with it's New Blood versus New Blood. So when Hogan comes out, Vampiro should help Kidman. True. Like you could do something where like Hogan beats up Kidman, but then Vampiro breaks it up. Yeah. But then still sneakily chooses to steal the pin or something like that. You could play with the group dynamic a lot more where Vampiro behaves as though none of this involves him at all. Yeah. Rather than realizing, hi, I'm in this faction with the guy that's getting his butt kicked at the moment. What I think would have made this work is if we got a short Vampiro promo, which I know you would have really loved. Yeah. But okay, hear me out. At least, like, have him say why he didn't help. But, you know, have Vampiro cut a 20-second promo like everyone else in this show, saying he doesn't care about the U.S. tournament necessarily, he doesn't care about Kidman, he just wants to get Sting. Right. So that's why he'd be willing to ignore Kidman being beaten up because by he, Hogan. he knows if I get past Kidman, I get to face Sting. That's Correct. all he cares about. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You can make a point of him moving out of the way for Hogan. Like, hey, here, you go, go have him. Have him. Mm-hmm. Hogan going, huh? Okay. And then just going for it. Yeah, exactly. I, I think something like that would have helped a lot. Yes. Yeah, I thought this was another match that got some actual time. It's listed as eight minutes and 28 seconds. And lo and behold, it's another match that's actually reasonably entertaining. Yeah. These two told a fun story of the initially casual and overconfident Kidman just being overwhelmed by a heavily aggressive Vampiro, Mm -hmm. but being able to fight back to even ground once he started taking things seriously. Leave aside the stupidity of Vampiro trying to powerbomb Kidman after already taking Kidman's usual counter, and Vampiro's seeming unfamiliarity with how to take some fairly standard bumps. Mm -hmm. And this was a fun little match. It was neat to see Vampiro, as you said, get to go full power wrestler in this one. Yeah. He's never full cruiserweight, but usually he doesn't pull as many strength moves as he got to do as against Kidman. Yeah. So I agree, that was really cool. I'm also torn on Hogan's late match entrance. Aside from it really should have been a DQ, it does rob us of a clean finish to what had been a great match. But it also does get a heck of a reaction from the crowd and nicely escalates the Hogan-Kidman-Bischoff plot, which is really the focus of Kidman's story at the time. Yeah. And if they don't want Kidman winning the U.S. title, I do think it's a fairly good way to remove him from the tournament without having him actually lose. Yeah. So I don't have a huge problem with it, but I think there's better ways they could have done it. I think using more modern booking, admittedly it's overused now, but this is, you know, 2001 when the show happened, or 2000 when the show happens. Do the Hogan's music plays, and while Kidman's at top, he's distracted and hit with the nail with the coffin and pin. Yeah, Vampiro just wins the match. In part because Hogan provided his crap yeah. to him, but then you have Hogan come down and beat the ever-loving crap out of Kidman. Yeah. yeah, giving you still what felt like a complete match. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out, maybe your opinion on this. I'm trying to figure out there was a miscue with Kidman and Vampiro at the end. Because when Hogan comes out, Vampiro tries to keep wrestling. Yeah, he does a one-handed bulldog, and then Kidman boots him in the balls, yeah. Yeah. It feels like he didn't get the idea that 
our match is stopped now because this is happening. Like, like I said, there's a few points in this match where Vampiro doesn't quite seem to get what's going on. Yeah. And I kind of do wonder if he got knocked a little bit loopy by that one point where it looks like he runs into Kidman's knees. Maybe. But it doesn't impact his performance that much. But there's some sloppiness that starts happening after right. that point in the match. Because he's compensating for what has seen to happen. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I can't say for sure, but that that feels like maybe an explanation to me. Yeah, it's just weird because like, the match stops for Hogan coming out. Then Kim has to forcibly stop it again, yeah. so he can get beat, beat up by Hogan. Yeah. We know where this is going. This is going towards a uh, hardcore match with Hulk Hogan and Billy Kidman. Yeah, yeah, at Slambury. Yes. I heard it in the build-up or in the follow-up, because I watched the Nature after as well. Hogan talks about how he's not Hulk Hogan anymore, he's terrible Leia, and he's going to have a fight. <laughs> I think that's building up Slambury, I believe. I, I think that's towards Slambury more, yeah. Yeah, Hogan getting rid of all his interesting colors and just being a big guy in all black. Yeah, with F-U-N-B written on his vest. Yes. <laughs> we cut backstage where Bischoff is praying. Bischoff says he's getting out of there, but Russo says if he leaves, he's a sitting duck. Uh, No, m- maybe a walking one? Yeah, if you're sitting, you're a sitting duck. Yeah, because Hogan will find him because the building's not that big. Is the largest arena in the United States, actually. <laughs> L- literally, the largest arena oh, well, in the go. United States, yes. Russo says he'll take care of things and leaves as Bischoff desperately pleads for him to stay. Bischoff continues to be great in these segments. Mm-hmm. Hogan stalks backstage and bellows at people, threatening to drag Bischoff behind his car until he smells as bad as Rodman. What did Dennis Rodman do to you, Hogan? Yeah, wow. He swears a lot. As he searches, until he finds the room with Bischoff's name on the door, which seems like it might have been a good first place to try. Yeah, maybe. He boots the door in and goes to choke Bischoff, only for Russo to return and reveal his earlier plan was, in fact, to summon the police. Normally I would call that sensible, but Russo recently committed assault and theft, and Bischoff recently attempted vehicular homicide live on TV. So I kind of feel like the cops would have questions for both of them as well. Yes. The cops drag Hogan off Bischoff. And pulled their guns on him. Yes. Holy crap, this got way too real all of a sudden. Hey, you thought Doug Dellinger macing Scott Steiner was something. Yeah. A legitimately terrified looking Hogan doubles back and falls on the couch. And Madden yells for the cops to shoot him, but they go for their cuffs as someone, I think Bischoff, yells as well for them to shoot Hogan rather than cuff him. We cut away for a second and cut back to Hogan being dragged away in cuffs as he and Bischoff continue screaming at each other. That got dark fast. Oh, it's even better. So following Night Show after this show, the New Blood people are in the building, and they've, they said no one else is allowed in. Like They've barricaded people out. Like They have actual police watching like, the doors and everything. Hogan shows up. The police say, don't let him in. And then he asks them again, and they just let him in. The night after, they pull guns on him. Oh, my gosh. Like, he got the one nice cop. Yeah. Jeez. <laughs> Consistency. This is certainly an intense confrontation, but the cops actually pulling their guns went way, way too far. Yeah. The image of Hulk Hogan staring down the barrel of several guns, I think I counted six or seven cops, Yeah, is downright disturbing. Yeah. And shakes wrestling's normal, largely consequence-free reality. 
I mean, this is the same company that just had, again, the very guy summoning these cops commit assault, theft, and attempted vehicular homicide and just go on their merry way. Yes. And where other people have committed backstage assaults and just waltzed on out to take matches that weren't even theirs. Yeah. But Hogan is suddenly at gunpoint. It's insane. Yeah. All you really need here is Hogan tries to attack, but gets interrupted by security slash police. Like you said, maybe have Dellinger come in and mace him if you feel like you need a justification for him being dragged away. But yeah, no less than six cops all drawing guns on a single man is just unnecessarily frightening to watch. That cutaway is very interesting, right? Yeah. Where they just blank for a second to, I forget, like the announcers for a second or something like mm-hmm. that. And then back again. I kind of wonder if Hogan needed a couple seconds to compose himself because he looks legit scared yeah when the guns first come out because i've seen him in movies he cannot act no yeah that felt like maybe they forgot to tell hogan guns would be drawn very possible in which case yeah my 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 heart would stop for a second when that happened because he completely stops moving like whoa and just like (laughs) falls back on the couch and sits there for a second yeah so i wouldn't be surprised if they needed to cut and say hulk it's okay and then he could get back into things yeah You go back a couple of years, the Attitude Era is at its peak. They're doing all sorts of nonsense under Vince Russo, of course, among other people. Bischoff and backstage bits talking to the wrestlers says, you know, these guys, they're doing all this crazy stuff on the show. They're going to alienate all these sponsors. But yeah, Pillman famously draws a, a single gun on Steve Austin. They cut away. That's 1996. And you're in yeah. 2000 in there. And cops throw several guns on a man. Yeah. Oy. It's bizarre. Well, we've showed the deadly serious consequences of an escalating feud between people, so now, of course, is the best possible time for a cartoonish hardcore match. Sounds good. So our eighth match is Terry Funk versus Screamin' Norman Smiley for the vacant WCW Hardcore Championship. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick. But wait, Bob, you have to know how we got this match. Oh, do tell. Oh, it's great. First, bear in mind, the champion who gave up his title was Brian Knobs. Just let's get that out of the way. At least he's not champion anymore. He's not champ. <laughs> yes. So on Thunder, they announced they would have a three-team match where the winning team would qualify for Spring Stampede to battle for the vacant title. Okay. So it's a six-person match with three teams. Okay. So you have Brian Knobs, the world champion, and his buddy Fit Finley. Back when they had matching crew cuts and uh, camo. Worst thing to happen to Fit Finley in years. Yes. You have the almost a real team of Hugh Morris and Ming. They did uh, Dungeon of Doom stuff together. Were they ever tagged together, though? I associate Morris and Barbarian more than Ming. I could be remembering it wrong, though. Maybe. And, of course, the final team is Terry Funk and Norman Smiley. Okay. So, it's a lot of what you expect. It's hitting and crowd brawling. There's a really awkward moment where Norman Smiley is set on a table by near the ramp area. So he's laying Let the, the record show audience that this required visual aids. Yes, it does. <laughs> so this is Hugh Morris's cue to run and stage dive off to splash him. However, I don't know if he messed it up or he was worried about hitting Norman. He jumps, Norman moves, he doesn't splash the center of the table. He hits, like, the very front edge of the table. Oh. And there's a concrete floor there, so 
Yeah, I'm not sure he could have competed in this match after that. It looked like a really pleasant bump. Oh, geez. He basically takes out, yeah, he takes out the edge of the table and Smiley runs off. Oh, geez. So ultimately, you get to where Norma Smiley is down in a ringside area. Terry Funk's fighting the ring with, I think it's Finley and Nobbs or some form of them. Suddenly, Dustin Rhodes shows up, beats him up. And then he gets in the fisticuffs with Nobbs on the outside of the ring. I don't know why they're mad at him, but they are. While that's happening, Norris Miley slides over and pins Terry Funk. Come again? Yes. Norris Miley pins Terry Funk. They're the tag partners, right? Yes. That seems like that shouldn't be allowed. (laughs) So, to summarize, Norris Miley won a three-team tag team match by pinning his own partner. Oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah, it's the real thing that happened. I, I didn't think, spoilers, I didn't like this match, but I didn't think yeah. that this match could get any worse. But knowing how we got to this match makes it actually somehow worse. Yeah. That is so stupid. I know. Did they not understand what a tag team is? No, barely not. <laughs> oh my gosh. Oh, man. Oh, that explains so much. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Why doesn't someone try that earlier? Yeah. <laughs> Just grab your own grab your own buddy, pull him into the ring, and say, hey, lay down, and just pin him. First team to do that wins. <laughs> yes. It's a race to death. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. Yes, yes. Putting aside that insanity, which is a lot... <laughs> Norris Smiley is still playing this gimmick of he doesn't like hardcore wrestling and right. he's involved in it. So he enters a match to qualify for the hardcore title match. I know. It's like if they at least had someone constantly like forcing him to do it. Yeah. Like he was reluctantly part of the new blood and Bischoff didn't like him and kept pushing him into these or something yeah. like that. The only way you'll, you'll get to stay in the new blood is if you fight for the hardcore title. Yeah. We need someone in here. Yeah. It's, oh, wow. Oh, man, that's so dumb. <laughs> Terry Taylor and Terry Funk, <laughs> Terry and Terry, Terry's a law, <laughs> are looking odd as Hogan's dragged away. Someone can be heard breathing heavily. I think it's Bischoff, as you can hear someone say, relax, Mr. Bischoff, I've got it taken care of. Mm-hmm. Taylor, meanwhile, calmly explains to Funk that Smiley's nervous about fighting, so he's not going to the ring, and Funk can find him in catering. Taylor gives directions. Turn right at the Doritos. What a massive tonal shift from the last segment. Uh Uh-huh. You can still hear Bischoff ranting about Hogan as Funk wanders down the hall, finds the Doritos, and heads into catering. Funk asks after Smiley, and everyone points at the restroom. I feel like we've seen this before, or since. Yes. So Funk heads in and finds Norman screaming and cowering in the stall. Funk boots in the door and drags Smiley out. Smiley is dressed in most of a baseball catcher's outfit, sans headgear. In the lunch area, Funk sprays him with a fire extinguisher, slams him on a very solid table that does not break at all. He just tips it over, because he's annoyed at it. Yeah. Dumps soda cans on him, and throws him through a kitchen serving window. When he follows, Norman sprays him with something from an overhead nozzle. It's like, it's the toilet used to clean the dishes. Yeah, yeah. I think it's just water, but... Yeah, no, it's just the water, yeah. Yeah. Smiley beats him up with a plastic trash can, metal trash can, metal table, and a cookie sheet, as referee Nick Patrick finally arrives. 
then dumps Funk into a trash can and tips it over. Funk nails Smiley with laptop in the head, thrice, for two. As a reminder, this was well before ultralight laptops were a thing. That looked solid. Mm -hmm. Smiley kind of like leans into each hit, too, which couldn't have felt great. Yeah, I was thinking you could have done a funny spot with the... uh, I think they definitely need more funny spots in these matches. Put Terry Funk in the trash can and knock it over. Go to pin him. And as you lean on the pin, the trash can rolls forward. <laughs> so you got to go it again. You keep doing it like two, three times. It's uh, not dumber than what they do in this match. No, no, it's not dumber. <laughs> it's not smarter, but it's not dumber. It'd be funny once. Okay. <laughs> Smiley stuns Funk and climbs a ladder to a ceiling pipe to hide. Even though, one, Funk watched him do it. Yes. And two, the pipe is barely higher up than Funk's head, so he can easily reach. Yes. Funk puts a table full of cookies under him and hits him with a chair so he falls through the table. Now I want cookies. <laughs> I'm still mad they brutal that Diet Coke back there. Although they do yell like, oh no, he's dumping Diet Coke on him when it's mostly regular Coke cans. Yes, that's true. <laughs> Funk and Smiley brawl towards ringside, and Smiley takes control with chair shots and rams into containers. As Funk crawls into the ring, Smiley nails him with the edge of a chair right on the back of the skull, mm. which had to suck. Yeah. Smiley smashes Funk's face into the chair on the mat, then dances suggestively around Funk's butt, until Funk swings the chair back overhead to nail him, then flings it at his face, which also had to suck. Yes. Smiley rolls out, and Funk props a ladder tilted between the ropes, as Dustin Rhodes runs out and attacks Funk pausing to fix the ladder's position for some reason. Mm -hmm. Rhodes pile-drives Funk onto the chair, but Funk gets a boot-up on a second-rope chair shot, and Rhodes awkwardly rebounds onto the ladder that he'd been nice enough to ensure was pointing exactly as it needed to be for him to fall into it. That's nice. I hate this match. Yes. Smiley to the apron, but Funk hits him with the ladder, then throws it out onto him for the three-count, the win, and the title. Funk accepts his hardcore title belt and celebrates as we cut to an ad for the WCW mouse pad, which Tony says is free to people who ordered Spring Stampede. Tony oddly notes that yes, you get a mouse pad, not a chair, ladder, or fight in the back. Are are those normally mail-in rewards for ordering pay-per-views? Yeah, Terry Funk delivers them to you. (laughs) However, Al, Mm. a great injustice appears to have been righted this year. Really? The mouse pad also bears WCW's website address. Oh, good. Which is now WCW.com. <gasps> so for some reason, it was WCW Wrestling in prior years, but now it's actually just WCW.com. They finally, I guess, worked that deal out. Got it from the internet squatter that took it, I guess. Yes. <laughs> I don't know if that was even going on in the 90s, but... Probably, honestly. <laughs> Thoughts on this one? Oh, let me get my comfort notes out here. Bad comedy. Weapon shot, a concussion or two. Yep. (laughs) That's it. This was, at least, a little better than their later match at Slambury 2000 that also involved Ralphus. Uh Uh-huh. But not by much. No. It's just more ridiculous hardcore crap, full of spots that are downright stupid in a variety of ways. People do things that just make no sense. Spots are overly complicated and doomed to fail. And through it all, the wrestlers take ridiculous risks with each other's safety, nailing each other repeatedly in the skull with heavy objects, and getting really, really careless with their chair shots in particular. Yeah. 
Funk just starts hurling chairs at Smiley, and that one time Smiley caught him solid in the skull with the edge was just awful to watch. Yeah. Yes, this did have some small moments of amusement, but it's just simultaneously far too silly and far too dangerous to be entertaining. Yeah. I very much wish they had not had this on the show. Mm-hmm. I'm torn on the idea that they have, here's the tournament for our US and tag titles, and then here's one hardcore match. It is disrespecting the title a bit that I guess it gets one throwaway match in the middle of the show. I'll agree with you, although I feel that this title deserves to be disrespected. Fair enough. <laughs> but it's just funny, like, here's this big tournament show, and you get one match for your title. That's- yeah, yeah. And yes, I definitely don't want more matches, but also one match is insulting. Yes, yeah. Backstage, Russo is confronting Booker T, who has changed from ring gear to nice slacks, button-down shirt, and even a tie. Got a date after this, Booker? Mm-hmm. Russo tells Booker that Russo is the nice guy and he's trying to help Booker, but Bischoff is angry. Russo says they can overlook what Booker did with Sting, or at least I assume that's what he meant by this potato crap. (laughs) That's what he says. I don't know what it means. (laughs) As long as Booker does him a favor. Our ninth match is Mike Awesome versus Scott Steiner in a WCW United States Heavyweight Championship Tournament semifinal match. The referee for this one is Billy Silverman. Awesome's music is so loud that it drowns out the commentators trying to discuss what just happened with Booker T. So is Steiner's. The commentators seem to move on to discussing Hogan telling Bischoff that he'd show up on Nitro or something, but that's all I could hear. Yeah, not a big loss. Steiner beats Awesome up, including a Steiner line, and throws him through the ropes, where Awesome takes a brief walk to recover while Steiner does push-ups. Awesome tries to get back in, and Steiner hits him, but when Steiner bounces off the ropes, Awesome hits a flying shoulder block over the ropes to his face, actually catching his legs on the ropes on the way down. (laughs) Awesome jumping splash off the mat with great hang time for two, and another two from a top rope flying clothesline. Steiner boots him in the nuts and hits a belly-to-belly suplex. Hudson brings up the loosened DQ rules, and Madam bizarrely says the cops had guns and weren't DQ'd. Tony pauses, then says, that's a good point, in precisely the tone of voice one uses when it was not, in fact, a good point. (laughs) Awesome counters a corner whip with a rebound back elbow for two, more back than elbow there, and gets another two with a great jumping leg drop. The crowd cheers, looking to one side, and as Awesome goes up top, Kevin Nash runs down and nails him with a crutch. The handle cover goes flying into the crowd. Yes, it does. Steiner stares confusedly at Nash, but turns and locks in the Steiner recliner on Awesome for the submission and the win. We get a glimpse of a satisfied-looking Nash, and Steiner poses in victory on the ropes. Thoughts on this one? It's less of an actual match than the last one was with Awesome, unfortunately. I think these two could work together well. I think Awesome, he has the really good offense, leaping ability. He's got all the physical stuff you need for a match. Mm -hmm. I think give him a good story with Steiner and give them a lengthy time and not a screw finish. I think they could actually have a really good match together if Steiner is motivated, which for the bits he tries to control, does seem fairly motivated on this show, which is good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, He's not distracted by all the nonsense. It's disappointing that this is a, my awesome second match. Right, yes, exactly. 
he is protected in the loss because he's attacked from behind when it seems like he's about to win. But at the same time, like we'll see the other part of the show, and I've seen on buildups, Steiner will get help someone cheating on the outside, and then he'll lock on a submission hold rather than just pinning a guy. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you could have just pinned the guy. He was actually out. Yeah, I actually would have preferred a pin in this case. Yeah. Or one of two things. One of two things. One, he pins him and just gets a normal three count. And, you know, that's the guy's unconscious. He loses really nothing in in that in that right. case. Or two, he puts on the sign of recliner, but the guy is out. The guy's just actually unconscious. So he doesn't actually submit. Right. He just passed out and the guy lifts his arm and checks three times and that's it. Yeah, or just as the, even as the one where like he's completely dead and they yeah, do that. Yeah. I think one of those two options works, but Awesome actually does submit. Yes. Which in second match in, I don't know. That's Yeah, they, they say like, you know, his back's already damaged from being hit by the crutch, but again, just just pin him. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I thought this was another super short, very basic match. Each got a couple minor highlight points for their stuff, but then we went straight to the finish. It's the Cliff Notes version of a Scott Steiner-Mike Awesome match. Mm-hmm. It was nice to once again avoid the usual heel-Steiner stalling, if only because the match was so short. Yeah. They did have some chemistry, though, like you said. I yeah. feel like these two could have a very nice match if they actually got time. Yes. So this was fine as an audition, but underwhelming as an actual match. I don't mind Nash's actual interference as it progresses the Nash-Awesome story, and that's Awesome's actual feud. Mm-hmm. And it's a way, like with Kidman, to get Awesome out of the title tournament without a clean loss. But, like you said, it's a shame that they have him submit. Yeah. And it is a massive shame that what's evidently Awesome's first two actual WCW matches are both short and complicated by weird outside interference. True. At least this one was less stupid. Yeah. For what's worth, Awesome got to do his big splashes and jumps and show off a bit. In his limited time. Yeah, he gets to showcase. Like, Awesome is actually a really good guy for the short matches. Yeah. I think if you didn't have the interference spots and you didn't have the super weirdness of the first match, Awesome would actually be capable of having match of the night stuff on a show like this where everything's like sub five minutes. Sure. Because he's so good at like just blazing through his stuff. Right. Which is part of the somewhat problem for him when he goes to longer matches at times. I've seen like that case, yeah. Just like decides to go steamroll like it's a five minute match anyway. Right. But on a show like this, he's like the perfect guy. So why don't you use him? Yeah. <laughs> like they 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 have one of the guys that can honestly handle super duper fast matches and they don't let him really show what he can do with that. Yeah. They have to overcomplicate things. It's a real shame. Mm-hmm. Agreed. This might surprise you, but there is no... I, lo- I had to check. I feel like I must have missed something. There is no pay-per-view match between Kevin Nash and Mike Awesome. What? No. What? <laughs> I looked. I can't find one. What? I, Goog- I googled it. I googled Kevin Nash versus Mike Awesome. I found them on Nitro wrestling a match. Oh, jeez. This is the, the post-slavery Nitro. <laughs> yeah. I mean... They've actually been building to it fairly yes. effectively. I, I don't know. If I could find something, I'll talk about it, but I, there's no reason this doesn't exist. That is very strange. Yeah. So here's the other thing to talk about. So Mike Austin debuted in Nitro before Spring Stampede. 
attacking Kevin Nash is a bit they saw where he hit him with the crutch. So the bit where Nash hit him with the crutch is payback. Mm. That's fine. Mike Awesome is, at this point, the current reigning ECW heavyweight champion. He's reigning champion for ECW under Paul Heyman. If you believe anyone that's talked about, and there's several sources say this, Paul Heyman was not paying them. Yeah. Or at least not paying them regularly. We've heard that about several performers. Yeah. That, 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 and at this yeah. time as well. Normally, you criticize a guy for leaving a company the way that Mike Awesome does. Yeah. But if you're, if you're not being paid... I mean, you're the top star in the company. You're not being paid, and you have a family, and you're doing all these shows for him. Yeah, yeah just I, this is this is dangerous work. I yeah, mean, this guy is going out there day in day out doing dangerous work for yeah. you. I'm totally on awesome side in this yeah. one. <laughs> so he took a big payday from WCW, and they gave him a bonus to leave now rather than show up after this pay per view ends, and that the four ECW could set up him losing the title. Yeah. That's where he's going to take four more of this. Famously, the ECW One Night Stand Show 2005. Joey Styles hates Mike Awesome for that. He spends the whole match critiquing his really off-putting stuff. Yeah. Because he's mad. I get it, but it's really rough. Yeah, yeah. So Mike Awesome is champion. It only was an injunction by a judge to stop him from showing up on Nitro wearing the belt. They said, you can't do that. So they had to work out a deal now to get the title off Mike Awesome and back to ECW. This is stuff of legend. I've seen people a whole video just on this. It's, it's really interesting to get the full story, but this is what happens. They work out a deal to have Mike Awesome show up at a ECW house show. Not pay-per-view, mind you. House show which they can then film for ECW and TNN. Mike Awesome's opponent in his title match? Taz. Taz works for the WWF at this point. <laughs> Having just left ECW... Maybe six months earlier. Less than that, I think. Wow. So there's this weird point in history where a WCW-contracted employee is defending the ECW title at an ECW show against a WWF star. That is an amazing confluence of things, isn't it? Like, yeah. That's one of the rare times, or perhaps the only time, that all three companies are involved in a single match. Yeah, it's, I can't think of one top of my head. It's, it's, if, it's, if it's more, they're pretty rare. All three in one place. Yeah. So that's a that's a really interesting historical foot. Yeah. Maybe one of those Brian Hildebrand Mora shows, maybe yeah, a bunch of people, but I don't know. Then it's a house show, it's a special event show. It's not airing on the company. Yeah, it's literally company. this is for this company with a guy from this company and this company. Yes. Yeah. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. It's bizarre that we got to this point. But yeah, so they wrestle a very short match, because I mean, let's be honest. Would you wrestle a lengthy, dangerous match? No. If you're awesome? No, I no, wouldn't. Absolutely not. Nor nor if I were Taz. Yeah. Because you clearly left for a reason earlier as well. Yes. I think it was very big of both of them to be willing to come back and do that. Yeah. Yes, yeah, so I wrestle at 90 seconds, and he taps out to the Taz mission and drops the title to Taz. This leads to Taz going on ECW pay-per-view, again, as a WF employee still, won their championship, where he loses to Tommy Dreamer. Okay. It gets better. You think WCW is alone in devaluing their, their titles. You are mistaken. The main event of the show, which is CyberSlam 2000, Tommy Dreamer fights an actual lengthy match against Taz. Probably Vince paid Taz for that. He drops the title to Dreamer. It's a big thing because he's the original guy. They expect him. At this point, Justin Credible runs out. 
Just Incredible was one half of the, at this point, ECW tag champions with Lance Storm. Mm-hmm. He throws down his, his own tag belt, which he defended earlier in the same show, spits on it, and says he wants a title match against Dreamer, who just wrestled the match. Dreamer, because he's a wrestling babyface, is a moron, and says yes. <laughs> and because it's 2000 wrestling, he's betrayed by his own valet and drops the title. Oh my gosh. And to put a, a nice big bow on this insane sandwich involving these titles... So the ECW title tag titles are uh, obviously not on the team anymore because one guy spit on them. Yeah, this leads to Lance Storm, Credible's tag partner, getting a title match against him on the next review because he's upset of everything. Whereupon Credible beats him and Lance Storm leaves for WCW. <laughs> so all that happened. I feel like isn't there a midpoint in there too where like Taz briefly well. ECW world champ actually shows up on a WWF show mm-hmm. with the belt uh-huh. and gets his butt kicked by Triple H, who's the WWF champion at the time. Yeah. yeah. So the thing that they had an injunction against WCW specifically to avoid, they beg a WWF guy to come in to save their title uh-huh. and then suffer the very thing that they wanted to avoid against WCW. Correct. It's not exactly a surprise that ECW is not around anymore either, is it? No, no. I realize this is not a show about bashing ECW, but that's fairly bashable. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, geez. Okay. (laughs) We cut backstage, where Vince Russo screams at Dustin Rhodes, while Booker T looks on. Russo is peeved that Rhodes let Funk win the hardcore title, as Russo wanted the new blood to win every title. Russo says Rhodes is fired. Rhodes tells him to get out of his face. Booker quietly tries to calm Rhodes, as Russo says Dustin and Dusty were never anything. The only time Dustin was something was as Gold Dust, which Russo claims credit for, including writing Gold Dust lines. Seriously, Russo, don't try to make me care about your storyline by admitting that your other storylines were fake. Yeah, that's true. Russo walks off, leaving Booker to soothe the angry Rhodes. Yeah, that's a weird segment. It's kind of interesting to note that, I don't know if this is the first time they've interacted, but we get a Booker T future gold dust, uh, past and future. Right, they are eventually uh, tag partners or something. They are, yeah. Yeah. In WWE, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a weird segment. It's weird for a number of reasons. Like It should be a Nitro, for one thing. For, for one, it should be a Nitro. For another, why is Russo yelling at the guy who interfered in the match? Not the guy who was actually in the match, but too busy dancing and climbing on pipes to win it? Uh, yeah, true. Yeah. It's not like Rhodes' interference gave Funk the means to win the match. Yeah. It's not like he screwed up his interference spot and therefore Funk, like, knocked him into Smiley and caused Smiley to lose or something like true, that. True, yeah. Like, in that case, I can I could totally understand going after Rhodes for that. Right, yeah. But Smiley was totally going to lose that match until Rhodes interfered. Yeah. Funk was, I believe, fully in control of the match at that point. Yes. Rhodes gave Smiley time to recover, and you fired him for it. (laughs) Yes. Yeah, it makes very little sense as a storyline. I realize that heel managers are not supposed to make sense in who they punish. They're supposed to be unfair about it. Yeah. But this, like, goes beyond that to being actively dumb. It does, yes. Our 10th match is Vampiro versus Sting in a WCW United States Heavyweight Championship Tournament semifinal match. 
The referee for this match is Mickey J. Vampiro is out first as the commentators discuss Rhodes firing. Madden brings up Goldust again, though not by name, which is probably smarter legally. Yes. And Hudson bizarrely claims that Rhodes threw a monkey wrench into the New Blood's plans by interfering on their behalf? Yeah. Again, it's really stupid. Thunder crashes, then the lights go out, and then strobing lights start up for Sting's entrance. Sting has put the trench coat back on, but has not repaired his face paint, though, to be fair, it's actually still mostly intact at this point. Mm Mm-hmm, yeah. Sting charges, but Vampiro hits a spinning wheel kick and lands strikes as Sting tries to get his coat off. Sting fires up, absorbing his blows, and floors Vampiro with one punch. Sting beats Vampiro up, inside and outside the ring, where Vampiro trips over a camera cable, but Sting smashes him face-first into a nearby chair. Pretty sure that was an improvisation at Sting's point. Yeah. Sting hits Vampiro with the chair, then rolls him in for a great top rope splash for two. Back outside, Stinger call, but Vampiro dodges the Stinger splash and Sting eats barricade. What a shot. Vampiro gets revenge for the chair seat ram, superkicks Sting, and sends him into the ring, climbing up top, but Sting rolls towards the ropes, and Vampiro awkwardly just climbs down. Tony nicely covers it as a defensive roll on Sting's part. Vampiro flying shoulder block and leg drop for two, and Madden says they might seem like they're overselling matches by yelling all the time, but the matches are just that crazy, which is something that you only say if you are overselling things. (laughs) Vampiro gets two counts off a back suplex and a suplex. Hudson notes that Vampiro's lost most of his face paint. Sting's is still actually pretty intact. Vampiro should ask where he buys his. Clearly, yeah. Vampiro slams Sting and goes up for, I think it's a dropkick? Sting tries to grab and counter into the Scorpion Deathlock, but they don't get the timing or position right and just collide and fall. Yeah. Tony nicely covers by saying that Sting swatted him down. I think Vampiro's legs just didn't end up high enough for the grab that Sting was going for. Mm, Yeah, I think so. Sting quickly just goes and hits the Scorpion Death Drop, then locks on the Scorpion Deathlock for the quick submission and the win. Hudson builds up that this means the Millionaires Club has a man in the finals of the U.S. title tournament, and Tony points out they've got a team in the tag finals as well. Madden says they haven't won yet. That's objectively true, yes. Yes, yeah, that is true. Thoughts on this one? I thought it was pretty good. My only issue with it seemed like they're a bit out of sync in quite a few bits here. Mm-hmm. The dropkick bit, the, uh, the, the the roll towards the ropes, and then sort of reconvening, I guess, to decide what to do next. There's definitely a good match in here. I think you don't ever quite get it fully there. They have the good match story intensity. <laughs> yeah. Even if we didn't watch all the Nitros and know the whole Brothers of the Paint thing and the betrayal thing, Vampiro, you know from seeing them, they don't get along. There's intensity to the match itself. Mm-hmm. When they're in sync, I think that's quite crisp and it's just good like contact and everything. And there's not interference at the end, so that's a bonus. Yes. Yeah, um, this got a little more time than the previous match, so it got a bit more developed. It's still a Sting match on Fast Forward. It goes through some common Sting spots in record time, but I definitely liked little touches that they added, like how Sting sent Vampiro face-first into a chair, which, again, I'm pretty sure was an improv to cover Vampiro tripping. Mm -hmm. And Vampiro nicely made sure to send him face-first into a chair in Revenge later. Sting felt powerful in this, and the commentary did a fairly nice job of building up his legend, which unfortunately does make Vampiro look a little weak at points. Yeah. 
He does get in the knife good bits of offense to feel like he at least has a chance at victory, but uh, still comes off looking weaker compared to Sting. Yeah, that's a recurring thing, I think, throughout their feud. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember us saying similar stuff at uh, Slamboree's match. Yeah. yeah. There's some awkwardness to this, as you pointed out. Aside from the botched ending spot, which they do at least recover from very quickly, there's at least a couple other points where they just seem on a totally different page about what's supposed to happen, leading to Vampiro starting to set up for something, but just stopping to go do something else. Yeah. So it's quite a bit sloppier than I anticipated, but they added more depth, too, and that's appreciated. Yeah. And like you, I appreciate that this at least ends clean. It's a rare thing tonight. (laughs) It is very, very, yeah. We cut to Mean Gene, who is with Diamond Dallas Page and Kimberly. Joined by Kimberly, Diamond Dallas Page. Tonight you have an opportunity to become the three-time WCW World Heavyweight Champ if you can beat the chosen one, Jeff Jarrett. Gino, there's only one thing that I want more than becoming the three-time, three-time, three-time heavyweight world champion, and that's to kick that rat back. Jeff Jarrett from one side of Shot Town to the other. He wants to hit my wife for the guitar. Well, baby doll, before the night is over, you're going to get your shot at Jeff Jarrett. If you get the big picture, let me connect the dots for you, Jarrett. Bada bing, bada boom, bada bang! Another short promo here, but DDP very effectively got across his anger at Jarrett acknowledging that he's coming for the title, but making clear his focus is revenge for himself and his wife. I'm sure that this promo could be better with a little more time to it, but I thought Paige did a good job with the little time he got. Agreed, yeah, he definitely has the right energy for this kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. knowing Paige, he probably had it written on a little note card that he went through several <laughs> times before the thing, but hey, whatever works, right? They've done actually a fairly good job with the short promos tonight, but it doesn't change the fact that they're very short promos. Yeah, exactly. It basically means Gene says, I have a question for you, and then they answer it and they leave. Yeah. Our 11th match is a six-man match for the vacant WCW Cruiserweight Championship. The referee for this one is Charles Robinson. So fortunately for you, Bob, there was no insane six-person match to set up this match, like with the hardcore title match. They pretty much just said, hey, we're doing this six-person match on Spring Stampede, and as a warm-up, here's the six people in a three-on-three tag match. But it's not like a qualifying one. Nope. It's just like, all these people are in there. Okay. Yeah, here's the people that are in the match, and there, here's another match of them also here. Okay. Shannon Moore and Shane Helms of Three Count enter first, taking microphones. Moore says he knows the crowd came to see Three Count, but only two could make it. But the two of them are better than anything else. Bit of an insult to the guy that's not there, now that I think about it. <laughs> it's having courageous, so... <laughs> Fair enough. Helm says everyone goes down for the three count. But suddenly, Crowbar, Lash LaRue, and the artist formerly known as Prince Iakea rush the ring, and the match is on. LaRue, Crowbar, and Artist beat up Moore and Helms, and LaRue throws Helms out and follows. Paisley appears outside the ring. Inside, Artist schoolboys Crowbar for one, as Juventud Guerrera appears, soaking wet, and with a sweet hat, with which he smacks Moore. It was a nice hat. It was, yeah, yeah. Chris Candido appears and attacks Guerrera. Everybody ends up outside but Candido and more, and Candido gets two with a slam as Crowbar returns to break. 
Artist, LaRue, and more go to the apron, and apparently this is now a tag match, but with no teams. <laughs> Helms has revived, but stays on the floor, as does Guerrera, and now Daphne and David Flair, as Crowbar and Candido fight. Crowbar, bridging Northern Light's suplex for two, and LaRue breaks. Guerrera decides to stand on the apron as well. Crowbar slingshot somersault leg drop on Candido for two, as LaRue breaks again. Tony explains that any man can make a tag to get in, as Candido rolls out and LaRue just stays in even though he didn't tag anyone. What the hell is going on? <laughs> it's a Suicide Six match, you know? These things happen. Oh my gosh. By the way, it's called a Suicide Six match. It is? Yeah. No one says that. Yeah, they say, they say it on Thunder. Okay. That's it. Thunder is not this show. That's true. Crowbar decks LaRue and falls over for no reason twice. I'm not sure what he was doing there. Yeah, he's doing like, I'm a crazy guy thing. So he's like digging fake back bumps like, haha. It's very strange. And LaRue is doing his dance like a crazy off. Yeah, he randomly does splits. Yeah. Then clotheslines Crowbar for two. Lash uses his signature maneuver per Tony for two as artist saves. Did did Tony forget what it was called? Yeah, (laughs) I think so. Guerrera comes in as Crowbar rolls out. So, tags are not necessary after all, I guess. Eh. Whatever. Guerrera counters LaRue's signature and floats over a slam for the Hoovy driver for zero as Artist saves. Candido gets suplexed by LaRue on the floor mats. Inside, Crowbar gets in and throws Artist out, then holds Guerrera for a Daphne Franken-screamer. Yeah. But Guerrera dodges, so Daphne nails Crowbar, who reels outside. LaRue gives chase, then just kind of comes back. Daphne screams at Guerrera, and he actually sells it like a sonic attack. Good man. It was pretty funny. He tries the Hoovy driver on her, but Crowbar helps her escape. Guerrera gets dropkicked and falls into Daphne, but Crowbar catches her. LaRue, Artis, Guerrera, and more, with an assess from Helms, each do outside dives onto people. Helms does a dance, and David Flair charges in to chop him once. Helms flees, and he and Flair fight outside. Candido goes up top, but Artis runs into the most distant rope possible, so Candido crotches himself on the turnbuckle. That doesn't feel like that should have happened effect. <laughs> yeah. Artist and Candido muck up a fight on the top rope, so they repeat it, and Artist dodges a top rope headbutt and hits a Samoan drop. Paisley puts a chair in the ring, and Artis goes to the second rope, but Tammy Sitch suddenly appears and pulls Artis' hair, which makes him jump forward and fall on his back on the chair in defiance of all known laws of physics. Yes. Tammy shoves the reeling Candido on top for the three count, the win, and the title. Tammy celebrates with Candido, but Paisley comes over and gets in Tammy's face, and they roll around fighting as Madden screams about catfights. Candido comes over but does nothing, as Robinson, Moore, and LaRue get Paisley and Tammy away from each other. Robinson and Moore get iron-clawed in the balls by Paisley and Tammy, respectively. Robinson sells that like a champ. Mm -hmm. Candido finally gets Tammy out of the ring and celebrates with his new belt as Paisley yells at both of them. You may have noticed that there were eight guys actually featured in this six-man match. Yes. And the competitors just charged the ring rather than being announced, so it was only after the match that I actually figured out who the actual competitors were. Uh Uh-huh. So here's the list. Okay. Shannon Moore, Chris Candido, mm-hmm. the artist formerly known as Prince Iakea, yeah. Juventud Guerrera, Crowbar, and Lash LaRue. Correct. 
For non-participants, we had Shane Helms accompanying Shannon Moore, uh-huh. Tammy Sitch accompanying Candido, Paisley accompanying Artist, and Daphne and David Flair accompanying Crowbar. Yes. <sighs> so our sixth man tonight has 11 people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Tell people who's in the match. Like, actually announce them. Yes. Good gosh. Thoughts on this? So I'm going to guess this is not your match tonight, Bob. Um, this may well be showing up in my worst three matches of the series. <laughs> yeah, I have a feeling. I get the idea of this match in theory, like in broad strokes. Oh, there's a lot of nonsense in this match mm-hmm. and confusion. So like, the idea is, okay, we have six guys that in theory can do these big flashy moves, although Lash doesn't really do much. He's not bad, but he has no oomph to what he does. He does his signature, whatever the heck it's called, twice. Yeah, that's true. He does. <laughs> It's like a Michinoku driver yeah, type yeah. of thing, yeah. It's practically a Hubi driver, almost. It, it's very close, yeah. Which is why Hubi counters it. He knows exactly how that move works. <laughs> He's like, oh, that? I can do that. Wee! <laughs> yeah. The idea is that we have all these guys. We don't have a lot of time, clearly, because we have too many matches on this show. Let's throw them all one match. This is like a highlight reel. Fans can see like their two, three big moves, their signatures. And they'll want to see more of these guys. So look at this cool stuff I got to see little of. I want to see a whole match. That's the idea, I'm pretty sure. Okay. Uh, in reality, everyone gets like 45 seconds to shine before we get another run and finish involving someone else debuting for the company in a shock. I think for me, the highlight for sheer stupidity, how about I don't take it from you? Carbo's holding Guerrero. Daphne dumps at him. She's going to do her dumping uh, Frankensteiner and lands on Crowbar instead. Could just stop. It's a two-part move. She jumps and lands on you and then does the rotation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She can go, oh, wait, then let her, him set her down. But then she does it anyway. She just yeah. does it anyways. The, the one thing I will say in her defense, it doesn't fully remove the stupidity, but she at least actually does a fair job of not looking at his face. Right. She lands and just does it rather than landing and looking down. You can at uh-huh. least buy that she actually didn't see, though... Why would you not look at their face? You, you, sh- you should look at their face. Yeah. I can appreciate at least, like, you can sell that based on what she did, uh-huh. she wouldn't be able to tell, but she should have looked. <laughs> yeah. It all could have worked if she, like, briefly, like, has a realization look, and then Hoovy or someone else pulls her and, like, makes her go. Yeah, like, yeah, that, that'd actually be kind of cute as a yeah option, yeah. Like, she has to get down, they pull her anyways. But yeah, I just love that she could easily stop the movie. Like, nah, I'm doing anyways. Yeah. I'm crazy. What a complete and total mess. Yeah. Well, individual moments of this match contained some cool moves, nothing flowed together at all, and it was impossible to follow. They don't even tell you who's actually in the match. At no point does anyone think to mention that Helms and Flair, for instance, are not actual match competitors. You just have to figure it out from the fact that they just never stand on the ring apron, mm-hmm. because apparently that's a thing, even though they totally get involved in the action multiple times. Yeah. Heck, Medusa recently held the cruiserweight belt, so Daphne, Paisley, and Tammy could easily be competitors as well as they get involved. Yeah. I'm surprised Robinson didn't start fighting, too. That's about the only way this could have been more confusing. Mm. This really makes you value normal match entrances or even just basic ring announcing. Yeah. Worse, there are loads of awkward spots in this match, from outright botches to people just seeming unaware of where they're supposed to be when. Yeah. It adds to the sense of this just being incredibly unpolished. Not even the competitors seem to really grasp what's going on everywhere or what the story of the match is supposed to be. Uh-huh, yeah. 
Add the flat-out stupid rules, or what I was able to figure out about them anyway, and you have a recipe for disaster. I mean, who thought it was a good idea to do a tag format for a six-man match in the first place? And once they did that, who thought it was a good idea to not actually require tags so we can't tell when guys are supposed to be in? If you're doing that, why not just let everyone fight at once? Mm -hmm. They basically do anyway. Yeah, I think part of the confusion might be a combination of people being involved. Because you have people that, as far as I know, like Lasharu and Crowbar, for instance, don't have a lot of international experience, at least at this point. Yeah. And if it Guerrero, who obviously worked in Mexico. So he knows how the Luchador tag matches were. If you dive out, that, that count as UX in the ring, so one takes your place. Yeah. So he's acting like that's the rules, I think. Yeah. But he's like the only one. But I mean, they're not even doing that, because like, people will just get in the ring, then stay there... And you got three guys in the ring, and then finally the one that was down just decides to roll out. Right. They don't wait for the guy to get out of the ring. No. They just are in there. Yeah, you have, like, one guy treating it like I think it's supposed to be, mm-hmm. which is a constant and out sort of match. Then a bunch of guys treating it like the sick man match, they don't tag out. And then, like, one other guy thinking it's a regular tag match. Yeah, it's so bizarre. Yeah. It's just poorly thought out in every possible way. It's rare for me to so strongly dislike a cruiserweight match. They're normally good fun. Yeah. But at a bare minimum, I have to know who's fighting and what's going on. And I got neither of those things here. So it was awful. What's the point really where cruiserweights are an afterthought in the company? It's really sad. Because, I mean, even people that are treated as former cruiserweights like Billy Kidman, his angle is Hulk Hogan calls me a flea market champion and beats me up every time I see him. Unless Eric Bischoff hits him with a chair or Mike Awesome power bombs him for me. So he is not being pushed like a big star on the rise in this angle because he's a cruiserweight guy and they go, well, he's like, look at how small he is. He can't be, blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. And a bunch of guys that could and did really shine in this, like Dean Malenko and Perry Saturn and Eddie Guerrero, famously left in January to go to WWF. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a massive, massive shame. I mean, and I do have to say, unlike the awesome Bigelow cat debacle where I said, you know, there's no fault to the competitors. In this one, I do have to fault the competitors as well. It's a terrible concept, but they also do a bad job with it. Yeah, it's a case of them all trying to get their stuff in and it's so condensed and so many things happening at once. It's just all, all individual parts, I think, for the most part, work if you watch them all separately. Like, if you get someone to watch segments of this match, mm-hmm. like I say, it's like a highlight reel match. But ultimately, it's still an actual match. And together, it doesn't work. Not a single one of them has bothered to tie it together. Correct. Or, like, come up with anything that gives it an actual story. Yes. So, yeah. You get into this sort of future indie stunt show style wrestling. Here's my list of 25 things I want to do in the match. Here's your list of 25 things to do in the match. If we figure out a way to connect move to move, yeah, it's fine. If not, whatever. Yeah. It's a shame. As we know from our next show, Candido defends the title against the artist, which also leads to post slamboree leads to a strange bit where Corbin and Daphne become co-champions. So you're not wrong about her being in the match. She's a future champion, like four weeks out from the show. <laughs> They're doing the Chris Jericho China thing. Yeah. And by the way, is, is that not amazing? Like, if, if you had to highlight a part of this match that was, like, legit the worst part of this match. Mm-hmm. Am I wrong, or would you also probably pick the Candido versus Artist bit at the end of it? Yes. 
And that's the one they decide to go with as a singles match. Uh Uh-huh. That says about all you need to say about WCW as a company at this point, I think. (laughs) Yeah. Tony quickly advertises Slamboree 2000, brought to you by Western Union Money Transfer. Please, we need the money. (laughs) We cut to Mean Gene, who is with the chosen one, Jeff Jarrett. (laughs) Jeff Jarrett, earlier on tonight, Diamond Dallas Page made a threat that not only would he win the WCW World Heavyweight title, but that indeed, paybacks would be a quote for what you did to Kimberly. Don't be a wise with me, old man. I'll smack your liver spots right in two tonight. Now, as far as DDP goes, what doesn't he get? I am the chosen one. I've got Russo and Bischoff behind me. I've got the new blood on my side. And after tonight is all said and done, I will be the new WCW world champ. So why don't you choke on that, you old Jarrett slap Random side note, that bit of Jarrett saying, I am the chosen one. That is definitely featured in one of the Slambury video packages. Oh, I think so. Because that exact cadence I recognized very well. (laughs) (laughs) I thought Jared did pretty much fine with this, but the only problem I have with it is he doesn't really tell us anything we don't already know. Yeah. He just kind of goes over the basic elements of this version of his character, if rather aggressively. I felt like it needed to more directly address the particulars of tonight's story with Paige. Yeah. Like Paige's did more directly. Mm-hmm. He just kind of makes it general, I'm a bad guy, rather than Paige is mad at me for this. Well, I'm mad at him for this. Or like bringing something more personal in. Yeah. I just, yeah, you, you could do like, you know, he's mad at me for, and Kimberly, if he's mad at that, wait till, wait till he sees what I do tonight or something. Right. Yeah. Like reference the storyline a little bit more. Yeah. But as far as the personality, he gets his personality across my yeah, yeah. way. Our 12th match is the total package, Lex Luger, and the Nature Boy, Ric Flair, team package, with Elizabeth, versus Buff Bagwell and the franchise, Shane Douglas, with Vince Russo, in the finals of the WCW World Tag Team Championship Tournament. Referee for this one is Nick Patrick. As Luger enters with Elizabeth, Tony discusses the results of the title matches so far. Oddly, he seems a little unsure whether Funk is part of the new blood, despite, one, Funk having such a long career he's already retired multiple times, yes. and two, Russo screaming at Rhodes earlier because Funk won, and therefore the new blood didn't. So it's not really that confusing, Tony. Yeah. If memory serves correctly, the first time Tony Funk retired was the year I was born. <laughs> yeah, I believe so. So, let's put that in mind. Not exactly new blood. No. Madden makes horrible comments about Tammy. Yeah. Flair is out next. The commentators keep selling these street clothes as symbolic, and I still hate it. Mm-hmm. Buff is out next, and he has even more fun with his entrance than last time. Look, it's rare for me to compliment Bagwell, but he's like the only guy tonight that really seems to give a crap about showmanship during his entrances. So, yeah, I'm happy with him. Sure. Even with the hat. <laughs> Douglas is last, and he's accompanied by Vince Russo with a baseball bat. Russo joins the commentators. Surprisingly, he predicts Bagwell and Douglas will win. I thought. Bagwell offers a handshake, and Luger looks questioningly at him, but then smiles and shakes hands, before booting him in the stomach. Mm-hmm. Luger beats Bagwell up, but Bagwell gets a boot up on a corner charge and clotheslines him for a wonderful Luger sell. Bagwell slams him and does a dance, but Luger no-sells. 
Douglas hilariously tries to signal to Bagwell, and when Bagwell finally turns, Luger roars at him, imitates his dance, Mm -hmm. and beats him up. Who knew that Luger versus Bagwell was what I needed right now? (laughs) Yeah. It's like, has the Cruiserweight match felt me so low that one of my least favorite matches from the Starcade run is pleasing me? Yeah. Bagwell manages an eye rake and tags in Douglas for some strikes and choking, but Luger press slams him, and Flair dumps Douglas out and gets a tag from Luger. Flair and Douglas fight outside as Hudson sneaks in a Dynamic Dudes reference. Back in, Douglas pokes Flair's eyes, and Bagwell and Douglas trade off wearing Flair down, with Bagwell angering Luger to get him to accidentally distract the ref for some cheating. Flair whips free of a Douglas headlock, but they knock heads and go down, up at four. Douglas puts Flair in the corner for punches, yelling, F*** you, Flair. Yeah. That said it all right there, Tony notes. Douglas flings Flair to the corner for a Flair flip, and clotheslines him down on the apron, but Luger clotheslines Douglas from the apron. Flair and Douglas crawl, and Douglas tags Bagwell, but Flair makes the tag to Luger. Luger runs wild with clotheslines, a diving forearm, a double noggin knocker, and a double clothesline. Flair in two, and they all brawl. Flair locks the figure four on Douglas, and Russo proclaims, This ain't happening, as he grabs his bat and goes to ringside. Bagwell saves Douglas, and Douglas holds Flair for the buff blockbuster. But Flair ducks, and Bagwell blockbusters Douglas for two for Flair. Kind of. He kind of hit, he definitely hits him, but he doesn't really blockbuster. Yeah. At least with that move, it's one motion yeah, to yeah. get rather than Daphne's where you have to pause in the middle. So yeah. it's a little more forgivable. Understandable. Yeah, yeah. Russo drags Patrick out mid-count. Luger, though, was the legal man during that, so shouldn't ah. have been counting at all anyway. <laughs> of course. Russo and Patrick argue and shove each other as Luger power slams Bagwell, accidentally kicking Russo's bat all the way across the ring. <laughs> Patrick clearly sees Brian Adams and Brian Clark entering the ring and rapidly turns away, pretending Russo had distracted him. <laughs> oh, jeez. Adams and Clark double slam Luger, and Russo knocks Patrick out off-camera and steals his shirt. Bagwell pins Luger, and Russo completely fails to put the referee shirt on. He settles for having it inside out and only over his head and one arm. <laughs> yeah, if you thought the list of fails for wrestling show would include putting on a shirt. That one is new. That's new. We've, we've had a fail of taking off a shirt before. That's true. But yeah. not putting on. Russo slides in and delivers a weirdly exceptionally fair, even slow, three count for the win in the titles. Yeah. He doesn't fast count it. No. What? What? He's just so confident and chronic, I guess. Yeah. I should note, though, that he counted with the arm that wasn't in the ref shirt sleeve, so that should mean it doesn't count, right? Yeah, probably. Otherwise, it'd be totally fine. Sure, sure, yeah. <laughs> Despite Bagwell getting the pin, Douglas' music plays. <laughs> Russo retrieves the belts and celebrates like he's the champ himself before finally delivering one to Bagwell. Douglas has found Russo's bat and drives it into Flair, then kneels next to him as we cut. Thoughts on this one? Lots of punching and fighting in this one. Definitely even more than the last one. It's definitely more organized, because then I have the whole weird four and two angle. Not till the end, obviously, with people running in. It's a more structured version, I think, of what the opening match was Mm -hmm. with these guys. It's still not great. It's sort of autopilot flair 
It's like he's wrestling, but he's, his heart's not in it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, where he's not wearing his gear and not committing to the whole look. They try to cover again, try to cover with the whole street fight thing, but yeah, he's. It feels like he's contractually obligated to wrestle all these shows, which is kind of a shame because you shouldn't be doing that to people. Mm-hmm. Like you said, though, Luger definitely delivers here, which is nice. Yeah. He has a lot of fun here. It's a shame he takes the fall, but I guess it kind of makes sense because with the whole Douglas and Flair thing. Mm-hmm. Interfered for the win. What a shock. Yeah. A debut interfered for the win. Also a shock. Oh, man. By the way, I should mention this because I forgot to mention earlier. As soon as Douglas shows up, they play up this angle where supposedly he's mad at Flair for dodging him for seven years and all this nonsense. We cover on the Slam Bree show. He's yes. Up again. Yeah. What actually happens in the buildup to this show is the end of 1999, beginning of 2000, Saturn, Malenko, Benoit, and Guerrero leave. And apparently Douglas also asked to leave, but they, do, they wouldn't let him out of his contract. We let the other guys out of theirs. They said, just, just stay home. We'll, we don't have anything for you right now. So he comes back right before the show. So that's where he's been. He's just been on paid vacation. Okay. On the same show where he comes back and they suddenly do this whole I hate Flair for everything, they give you a singles Douglas Flair match. <laughs> they don't keep them apart and like six days until their first competition is in this match. Yes. <sighs> Same okay. with within the hour of the story happening, they already wrestle singles match, which of course ends in DQ and the whole thing. As you can guess how that ends, jeez, that's where the whole steal and the watch thing happens. Okay, yeah, this was almost entirely basic striking with very few actual wrestling holds or slams, but the big character bits featured, particularly from Luger and Bagwell, still actually made it a pretty fun watch. Not too deep, but fun. It surprises the heck out of me that I'm praising Luger and Bagwell there, by the way, not Flair. True. It's not that Flair was bad, but he wasn't the highlight here, surprisingly. I don't want to oversell this. This was just a basic average tag match. But on this show, that puts it on the upper tier of matches. (laughs) Yeah, it has the same sort of feel they were going for with the first one. I'm guessing the Luger-Flair influence. They, They, like, successfully manage it on this one where they... Yeah. Tried and failed on the Well, yeah, they go for that old school tag match feel. Mm -hmm. And Bagwell and Douglas, also being old school guys, despite being in the new blood, Mm -hmm. can manage that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. The ending, I agree, was goofy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It it, it goes wrong in all sorts of ways, too. Russo seems like he actually came over early. Yeah. The bat that he brings in never figures into things. Correct. Yeah. They totally muck up distracting. Patrick from Adams and Clark. Uh-huh. Russo can't figure out how to wear a shirt. Nope. And why does wearing a referee shirt make your pin count valid? Uh, yeah. So, average match, but fun, but with a flat-out stupid ending. I just realized we missed the great ref wall as well. We have Nick Patrick, who does that famous... Knocked out, but he doesn't... Yeah. yeah. He's that really goofy cell, and good to see it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, Slamboree, we would get singles match pairing with these two, which means the tag titles are not defended, despite just having a show about crying new champions, you know. Why have that happen? You know? Yeah. In the short time following Slamboree, we will also have a title change where Chronic would win the titles. To make a point on the follow-up Nitro to this show of attacking the Harris Brothers and basically saying... We're new blood, but we just want to 
become championed were not aligned with you ideologically. Yeah. So the thing with Chronic has never quite made sense. You've been to this before. They're these two big muscly guys in like vinyl. Mm-hmm. And their name is based as a, you know, a marijuana reference, in case you didn't get it. They don't look like potheads. No. Or even will that partake like, at all. Because there's a levels of that, obviously. So on the Nitro after this, they try to make Chronic like their catchphrase. They have a thing about how, you know, if you fight us, you'll be in chronic pain and we'll be a chronic night. They took like three or four of them. They throw all these ideas out what chronic actually means. Wow. That's all pure Russo nonsense. Aye. And that is a stick. It just goes, yeah, you're a big guy. There's chronic. Their moves called the high times. Even they don't, clearly don't smoke pot. <laughs> Back to mean Gene. And he is with Scott Steiner. The bump, the finals for the United States title tournament. As all set, you're going to be representing the new blood against Sting for the gold. Me, Gene, I represent myself and keep that straight. You're looking at a physical phenomenon. You're looking at a genetic freak. I'll tell you what, you see that vein in that arm right there? That's larger than Sting's arm put together. So I want you to do something. You go find Sting and you tell him his is mine. Another short one, but Steiner does reasonably well with this, aside from oddly claiming that his vein is bigger than Sting's arm put together. Uh I mean, it'd be weird even if he worded that correctly, but he also words it wrong. But Steiner lets us know that he's for himself before the new blood, separating from them, but in a different and more selfish manner than Booker earlier. Mm -hmm. So I like that they actually managed to do two guys that are in the new blood, but kind of outside the new blood as well, but in different ways. Yeah. One feels honorable and the others feels more selfish. I think my only problem with that is this idea that he's this like crazy loner guy doesn't fit with the last like two years of Scott Steiner. Yeah. NWO, NWO elite before that hell mm-hmm. tag team with his brother. Though I, though I will say they make a bit of a habit over the last few years of having him repeatedly demonstrate that he's more interested in his own safety and his own achievement than whatever group he's in. Yeah. So that part of it feels legit. What feels least legit is that people haven't recognized that by now and continue to let this guy join groups when he's clearly only in it for himself. True. It is terrifying to see him actually point out the massive disturbing veins in his arms as well. They look ready to pop. Yes. To quote Stewie, chicks dig vascular men. (laughs) So our 13th match. Can't believe we've got so many matches on this show. Yes is Big Papa Pump Scott Steiner versus Sting in the finals of the WCW United States Heavyweight Championship Tournament. Referee for this one is Billy Silverman. As Steiner enters, Tony updates the score for the night. New Blood 2, Terry Funk 1, Millionaire's Club 0. At least now he's figured out that Funk is not part of the New Blood. Specifically, he cites Rhodes' firing, so I guess that finally occurred to him. Oh, okay. Steiner... Let some fans feel his muscles on the way to the ring. We cut back to Gene again, and now he's with Sting. All right, Sting. Uh, of course, your opponent was in here just a moment or two ago. And uh, Big Papa Pump Scott Steiner, right now, in my estimation, a loose cannon. A couple of moments from now, you're going to be facing him for the United States title. Big opportunity. Bischoff and Russo, they want war. Well, guess what? You got yourself a war. And Scotty Steiner, you are going to be the next 
casualty. You want to try to run from DDP, from Flair, from Luger, from Hogan, from me? It's not going to get you anything. You know why? Because WCW's blood runs through our veins. It's showtime. Again, a pretty short promo. This one felt a little weird to me because it's modern crow sting, but he delivered the promo very much in the old colorful early 90s sting style. For sure, yeah. I just associate this sting with the dark broody hanging silently in the rafters act. It's also a little funny watching sting deliver a promo with half his face paint worn down. Yeah, yeah, it is. Still, this did inject a little extra energy before the match, at least. Yeah. I like that we're finally getting a sting promo here. I get the idea that you maybe don't interview people before they're in the finals of a tournament, but it's kind of weird that they just haven't talked to them at all until now. Yeah, yeah. They appeared twice in the show already. They're like, eh, no, now, now we'll talk to you. Yeah. <laughs> Does it feel a tad weird, by the way, that we got these promos just before the U.S. title match, but well after the promos for the world title match, which comes later? Yeah, that's true. Kind of a strange promo order to me. Back to the ring, and Sting makes his entrance to strobe lights after a false start where the strobes come on far too early. No, oh, no. Madden builds up how insane it is that both of these guys are fighting three matches on the same night. Yeah, that's never been done before, except Starcade 1989 for both, Starcade 1990 for Scott, and Starcade 1992 for Sting. So maybe not that surprising. Yeah. <laughs> Sting gets the crowd cheering, and Steiner makes a rude gesture at them. Steiner attacks, but Sting lands clotheslines and drop kicks, and Steiner rolls out. Oh, Scott, you were doing so well. Yeah. Steiner signals for a timeout, but Sting dives over the top rope onto him, rolls him back in, and tries his top rope splash, but Steiner gets his knees up. Steiner press drops Sting, then yells at the crowd. Steiner line and elbow drop for two, and he threatens Silverman. Steiner suplex, and he goes outside and yells at the crowd. He's back in fast, but it's really annoying to see this coming back after he's avoided it all night. Yeah. Steiner tries a top rope belly-to-belly, but Sting escapes and builds to the Stinger splash. But on a second one, Steiner pulls Silverman in the way. Sting just shrugs that off. I guess he's used to that by now. Yeah. (laughs) He hits a third Stinger splash to Steiner, but on a fourth try, Vampiro suddenly bursts through the mat and grabs him by the leg. Steiner charges, but Sting boots him in the face. (laughs) But Vampiro drags Sting down through the mat under the ring. Madden preposterously proposes that Vampiro got down there by tunneling through the arena floor. What? Well, you know, like vampires do, Bob. No! (laughs) Vampiro surfaces with an unconscious, slightly bloody Sting. Madden says he's covered in... What is he covered in? Okay, first off, blood. It's it's blood. Second, he's not covered in it. It's on his mouth and a little bit on one arm. Yeah. Vampiro hides under the ring, and Steiner revives Silverman and locks Sting in the Steiner recliner. Silverman checks the arm, only once, and awards Steiner the win and the title. Like we said earlier, that would have been a better ending to the awesome match. Yeah. Not including the Vampiro bursting from the ring, to be clear, but that basic concept anyway. Steiner celebrates with the belt, then spits on the barely conscious Sting and makes rude gestures at the crowd. The commentators somewhat clumsily question why Vampiro would help Scott Steiner and how he got under the ring. Thoughts on this one? It's a decent match, but 
it's more of a punch kick kind of match than the other Sting matches, unfortunately. I think it's a combination of obviously different opponents in all three matches, but it's also the fact that I think it's later in the show, so they've wrestled a bunch of matches. Diane Steiner's case, not long matches. Yeah. So it's not like he's necessarily worn down, but it's definitely, this is my third match, I'm doing these things here. Yeah, I mentioned these guys have both done this before, but it has been close to 10 years since the last time that one of them did it. Yeah. It makes sense that they may not be as capable of having three great matches as they used to be. Sure. And that might impact the caliber of performance that they're able to put on at this point. Yeah. I know was that Sting's refusal to stop doing Stinger Splashes will be his downfall forever. <laughs> yes. In fairness, it looks really fun. It does, yeah. <laughs> you know, I would want to continue doing those if I were capable of doing them. Yeah, true. Yeah, it's just funny because like, a ref is thrown in there and he's like, hey, I'll keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> Which, now, that's the thing is weird, too. So Steiner is recovered enough to pull a full-grown man in front of the move. But then afterwards, not... Recovered enough to move out of the way of the third one? Yeah, yeah. I guess you figure that uh, Silverman being a reed-thin referee is not enough to fully block the Stinger Splash. But I'm thinking it's either that or maybe Vampiro is late on his entrance. That's possible, yeah. Sting maybe wasn't supposed to have to hit a third one, but Vampiro yeah. was late, so he just had to go for it. Cause... Yeah, because Sting was back and noticed the fourth <clears throat> one, then he stopped. Yeah. That's my guess. That, I, I could see that. We've been blaming Vampiro for all sorts of stuff tonight. We might as well lay one more. Yeah, sure. Right? Why not? <laughs> Sorry if you hear over here this Vampiro. I'm sure, I'm sure you're a nice guy in person. Yeah. I was thinking about doing the ref bump. So we haven't actually covered the show officially, but Bash to the Beast 96, the, yeah, the most famous WCW show ever, for obvious reasons. They do the angle where Luger is pulled in the, between a stinger splash and somebody. Mm-hmm. He's taken out and can't work the rest of the match. Like, they take him in the back, and like on a stretcher, they got to check him in the back for everything. Yeah. Meanwhile, the ref, he is out, but he's revived and fine. I think in fairness, I think with Luger's spot, they also say that he connects with the ring post. Mm, okay. I, I don't want to think that Luger is less durable than the referee. I get your point, yeah. It's just, it's, I had flashbacks, and I'm like, wait a second, that took out the ref a lot less than I did Lex Luger. <laughs> Maybe the Stinger Splash is more powerful if there's more color in the face paint. Okay. So because he went, you know, just black and white face paint, it's depowered the Stinger Splash somewhat. Wasn't Luger wearing face paint too, though? Yeah, but that actually enhances the Stinger Splash oh, okay. effect even more. It gives Luger power, but it it's like an effect face paint plus power to Sting. Oh, so okay. the more face paint is out there, the more okay. powerful Sting is. Gotcha. <laughs> so his, his max power was higher. For all yeah, time. so unfortunately that worked against them in that one moment. Gotcha. <laughs> yeah. Obviously, vampire interfering was going to happen. Yeah. That was a gimme. At least they did it differently than just someone suddenly runs and jumps in the apron and attacks them, like two matches we've seen like in a row. It's still a little silly, the whole cut through the ring thing. It's been done a bunch of times. A little, right a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It was starting to become a trend around this point, I want to say, but yeah. It's a thing that should never have become a trend, but it was becoming a trend, yes. Yeah. I want to say Kane started, but I'm not. I'm pretty sure, yeah. Yeah. By the way, they're like, they just dragged Sting straight to hell. I'm like, I think you're looking for a big red guy when you're talking about yeah. it that way. <laughs> the devil's favorite vampire, I guess. <laughs> Maybe Dracula's favorite vampire. Yeah, yeah. There you go. 
Yeah, I feel like I'm saying stuff like this a lot, but this is a Cliff Notes version of a Sting versus Steiner match. Mm-hmm. They get a couple big moves each and boom into the quite weird finish. Sting does what he can, and Steiner mostly does what he can between minor bouts of stalling, but there's only so much they can do in the short time that the match gets. As for the ending, I've, as you may have noted, I've never gotten the whole pull the guy under the ring thing. Just try to picture two guys fighting down there. Yeah. I mean, there's not much space to begin with, and we've seen that there's other stuff down there that takes up a lot of it. It's kind of an amusing mental image, them both trying to fight hunched over against spare tables and ladders and stuff. Mm-hmm. I found it a little bit weird that Silverman didn't do the usual three hand drops thing. He just goes once. But Maybe because of the blood. Yeah, yeah. I, I guess it just is so obvious that Sting is out, but I'm used to seeing the three drops regardless. Yeah, yeah. No, I got you. This did what it had to do, but nothing more. Yeah. One thing that's kind of funny, too, about this. So the whole point of this New Blood Millionaires Club thing is that the New Blood were held down. They're not getting chances. Now, we're giving them chances they didn't have. So here we are at Spring Tempe 2000. New U.S. champion Scott Steiner. Who fought last year. Where were we at? Where were we last year? Spring Tempe 1999. New U.S. champion Scott Steiner. Yeah. And a tournament. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. And a tournament Bob Booker T. Uh-huh. It's not the same match this time. Yeah, yeah, it's it's ridiculous, isn't it? Like, the entire idea of the angle is guys trying to fight for opportunities that they never got. Scott Steiner gets the opportunity he's already gotten. Yeah. Yeah, it would make sense if another guy reached the finals, but not with Scott Steiner. To your point earlier about them having more New Blood people, they should have had Scott Steiner involved in qualifying for the world title bit. Yeah. Because why wouldn't he, why would he not want that? That's That's the one that he hasn't had yet. Yeah, exactly. We cut to the commentators, and Tony has a fascinating expression on his face. Mm-hmm. It's kind of a, I really have to talk about this face. Tell me what's going to happen next, he asks, and goes over some of the ridiculous events of the last couple matches. He's trying to make it sound like he's building up an anything-can-happen atmosphere, but there's a bit of a, yeah, I can't believe it either, in his eyes. <laughs> Madden says the New Blood set a level playing field, and now Jarrett will fight D.D. Me. Tony ignores him, playing with the papers on his desk. Yeah. Just blatantly ignores him completely. Tony almost has his uh, Hawkeye in Age of Ultron moment, where he's like, you know, we're a flying city and such a robot, and I have a bow and arrow. <laughs> yeah. So that's, you know, good. Hudson builds up the next match being Millionaire's Club versus New Blood, and says, Paige will get his revenge for Kimberly. You tell him, Scott, Tony says, and throws to a video package. <laughs> I think Tony has reached the I no longer give a crap. Tony has left the building. <laughs> yeah. Tony's not here anymore. <laughs> who will once again change the game. The power is Vince Russo. All titles will be stripped tonight. It'll be a brand new playing field. New beginning. We have no champions. Four men are going to compete in a mini tournament to determine who will face the chosen one, Jeff Jarrett, at Spring Stampede for the now vacated WCW World Heavyweight title. This is our first tournament matchup. Diamond Dallas Page coming off a lower back injury and the total package. The winner of this match will face the winner of a sting against former world champion Sid Vicious. Buff Bagwell making 
same time with Elizabeth and Kimberly. Diamond cutter! Just the former heavyweight champion of the world stalks to the ring to face his destiny. Sting is making a case that he should wear the gold. Big Stinger splash on the Sid Vicious. What on earth? The wall just wiped out Sid with a chair. Oh, he chuck slammed him on a table. Sting's going to win this thing by count out. And for the second straight time, someone from the new blood has paused the tide to turn in this mini tournament. Who will face Jeff Jarrett. The chosen one realizes his destiny when I am crowned the new WCW World Heavyweight Champion. What is he doing with, with Kimberly at ringside? Vampiro hit the nail in the coffin on Sting. Diamond Cutter on Sting, who's already down. One, two, three. Jeff, Jeff Jarrett. Jarrett will face Diamond Dallas Page at Spring Stampede. Jarrett's in the ring. Oh, my oh! God. He wants to take my wife's head off with the guitar. I'm going to rip his head off at Spring Stampede. Bada bing, bada boom, bada bang! Looks like the chosen one is going to serve up a little double dose of payback. Jeff Jarrett, will he realize his dream on Sunday? Or can Paige rise above the weekend back? This video package had the manic energy of WCW video packages around this time, with lots of quick cuts. But it did do a reasonable enough job of showing the tournament story, I guess. It is a little weird to hear Jarrett talk about getting payback when Paige is the one with a revenge story. Yeah. I guess it's for Paige hitting a diamond cutter on him at some point. That's all I can figure. Sure, why not? Yeah, there's a real manic injury. It's like two like hyped-up kids describing a movie to you. <laughs> yes. This happened, this happened. You should believe it happened. You should believe it happened. You still get it. But you just referenced one of the Avengers bits. So, yeah, it's it's like that bit at the end of the first Avengers film where they cut to the, like the ten year old kid describing the battle. Oh yeah, it it feels like that. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Seeing the video packet of the mini tournament really highlights the theme of WCW, which is three matches, all three which have outside interference to cost someone the win. Yeah, yeah. It's also mean we see set up for a. Sid Vicious, the wall match that we don't get on the show. I know you're disappointed, Bob. No, I'm not disappointed at all. <laughs> That's the best booking decision WCW's made all night. <laughs> it's a little strange, by the way. Uh-huh. We get multiple matches in the U.S. in tag title tournaments tonight, but only the final match of the world title. Yeah. Not that I wanted more matches on this show, but it feels backwards. Yeah, I think it kind of works in the sense that they want to make things easy for Jeff Jarrett here, but... They're also making it easy for DDP as well. Yeah. They should have found some way of DDP, you know, forcing them one of the matches as well. Mm-hmm. Maybe. I don't, I don't know how that would work, but something. So, at long last, <laughs> our final match. The chosen one, Jeff Jarrett versus Diamond Dallas Page with Kimberly in the finals of the WCW World Heavyweight Championship Tournament. Referee for this one is Charles Robinson. Yeah, it's good to see Kimball out here, because I heard she got her head cut off earlier. <laughs> Apparently, <All right>. yeah. <laughs> I still don't like Jarrett's country rock entrance theme. We get to listen to it for a long time, too, as Jarrett pulls a Goldberg and walks all the way from backstage on camera. At least he didn't headbutt a door. Yes. Did we determine whether his theme is the Kid Rock song? 
it, it's practically like that Kid Rock song. That's probably another one of the Jimmy Hart ripoffs or yeah. something. He poses on the stage like there should be pyro, but there's no pyro. Yes. Madden makes disgusting comments about Kimberly. Mm-hmm. Jarrett finally gets pyro when he poses on the ropes. Paige is out next as we see someone with a positively Paige book cover sign. Paige also walks from backstage after first looking for Kimberly, who was retrieving a water bottle for him. They pass a broken table on the way. I'm pretty sure it's the one that Smiley fell through from the overhead pipe. It is. I was wondering if you noticed that, yeah. Yeah, so thanks for that reminder. (laughs) Yeah, right? We get some extra bass in the sound for a little bit as they reach the ramp. I think maybe we're hearing some of the backstage version of the audio, so we're getting the thud from being closer to the speakers or something. Yeah. And Paige gets stage pyro. So he's one up on Jared there. Mm-hmm. The extra base comes back when he gets to the ring as well for a second. So weird bit. As the camera pans over, we can see that they've taped up the hole that Vampiro put in the ring. That's nice of them. Paige decimates Jarrett and mocks Jarrett's yells of pain. Paige smoothly counters a hip toss into a float over DDT for two. And Tony has some fun with DDT by DDP. Mm-hmm. Good that he's finding some moments of amusement tonight. Yeah. I still wish we'd gotten a Jake Roberts DDP feud at some point for the inevitable crowd chance. Oh, yeah. Jarrett rolls out, and Paige vaults over the top rope onto him, then calls Kimberly over to slap Jarrett. Paige flings Jarrett over the barricade, and they brawl through the crowd for a while, using various weapons against each other. A fan hands Paige a drink, and he takes a sip, then wonderfully spews it out when Jarrett slugs him in the balls. (laughs) Crowd fighting in a Jeff Jarrett match. That's a unique idea. (laughs) You can hear Paige tell Jarrett to get ready before he flings him back over the barricade. Oh, yeah. They've got the camera mics turned up very loud during this match, so you can hear a lot of them talking to each other and especially them yelling in pain. (laughs) Yeah. Jarrett grabs Kimberly and shoves her into Paige, distracting him for a cheap shot, but Paige gets him into the ring and Sunset flips in. But Jarrett hangs on the ropes and sits down for two. Paige rolls Jarrett over for two. Jarrett crotches him on the top rope for a superplex, then bashes Paige with a chair until Robinson takes it away. Jarrett works Paige's back, but Paige counters a whip with a back elbow, and both are down, but up at six. Paige powerbomb gets two and a half. Bischoff appears on the ramp with a neutral expression. Paige and Jarrett brawl onto the ramp and around ringside, and Jarrett rips up a fan's positively Paige book. I hope the guy expected that to happen, because hardcovers are pricey. I think they was positively a plant. (laughs) Probably, yeah. Jarrett does miss an opportunity to also hit Paige with the book, though. Yeah, it's where he teases like he's going to use the book as a weapon and then rips it up instead. Yeah. I guess that, that would make the fan more upset. <laughs> Jarrett pulls Paige crotch first into the ring post, but Kimberly stops a second attempt, and Paige counters a third. Paige flings Jarrett corner to corner and perfectly slides under Jarrett's kick to land outside where he pulls Jarrett crotch first into the ring post. Paige tries the diamond cutter, but Jarrett grabs the ropes and Paige goes down hard as Jarrett's flailing arm knocks Robinson reeling. Jarrett clubs Paige with the world title for two and a half. Jarrett locks on the figure four and earns a two count. Paige can't quite turn the hold over. Madden actually nicely attributes that to the injured back. But Paige uses the fight to scoot to the ropes and force a break, then counters another figure four attempt with a roll-up for two, and another for two as Jarrett yells at Robinson. I like that bit. It looked like Paige was unable to get the figure four turned over, Mm -hmm. but he 
tricks Jarrett into fighting that instead of fighting him sliding towards the ropes. They actually really nicely portray that. Yeah, that's pretty The page is able to, like, scoot himself without Jarrett realizing he's scooting himself. Right, yeah. Page rock bottom gets two and a half. Yes, we got a rock bottom this year, pedigree last year. (laughs) Yeah, right. Jarrett gets a sleeper hold, but Page fights free and uses a sleeper slam. Bischoff grabs Robinson, and the commentators theorize that he's helping Page, even though Page just hit a move on Jarrett that could have led to a pinfall. It's based on nothing, too. Yeah, yeah. Robinson actually tries to deck Bischoff, which I don't think I've ever seen a referee do. <laughs> yeah, it's weird. He has, like, he has Robinson's, like, one arm locked up, and he's, like, blocking his other arm from hitting Yeah, him. and Robinson is aggressively punching at him. It's, a, it's really surprising. <laughs> yeah. Page hits the diamond cutter on Jarrett and calls to Kimberly, who brings in Jarrett's guitar. Page holds Jarrett, but Kimberly hits Page. And Jarrett hits the stroke as Bischoff lets go of Robinson so he can count three to give Jarrett the win and the title. Bischoff gives a wonderfully smug smile, and Madden proclaims Kimberly as new blood. Kimberly comes in and shares a hug with Bischoff. Russo, Douglas, and Bagwell come down too, and Kimberly shares a hug with Russo and Bischoff, as Steiner, Candido, and Tammy Sitch appear as well. Thoughts on this one? It's a pretty good match. I thought these two work well together pretty decently. Mm-hmm. They both sort of can work an old school match. This is definitely Jarrett's thing. Yeah. Uh, they work in some good new school stuff as well. Newer moves and counters. As we see in the, even with the nonsense of next year's triple cage match and the other person involved, these two are a good pair. It's clear why they work together so much. Yeah. They definitely have the same sensibilities. That said, I thought some parts kind of dragged. The submission stuff especially drags a bit for me. It's one of those things I know you'll say, and rightly so, that DDP doesn't just like sit there in a hole. He's always fighting. Even if his fighting is kind of just like shadow punching, like being attacked by bees. <laughs> yes. Especially when he does this like fight to get to the ropes. I like to picture that that's how DDP actually goes to sleep at night, because it was a sleeper hold that he did that on. Oh, that's true. And yeah. just, like, just like him falling asleep is lying in his bed, punching wildly at the air. Yeah. For his part, DDP makes a really good face in all the right way. Mm-hmm. He's constantly fighting underneath. He's able to time his offense really well and get his strikes in, get his you know, hope spots. He has that ability that the best faces have of being able to look powerful, but vulnerable at the same time. Mm -hmm. So he can convince you, yeah, I've got this, but also get your sympathy when he needs to. He's really The second second he gets countered, yeah, you feel the same way. The top faces are able to do that really well. The guys like Sting, Ricky Steamboat, DDP. Yeah, more like Rock, for instance, yeah. Rock rock as well, yeah, great great example, yeah. Yeah, Mm -hmm. any of the top faces in the business are always able to do that, where they're able to sell you simultaneously on the fact that they are really powerful, uh-huh. and you know they can win, right? but also that they can get in trouble and make you honestly worried for them. Mm-hmm. And Paige is exceptional at that. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's two sides to this. The other side is that DDP is a really good face, so he's also a really dumb face. <laughs> That's true. My problem with the ending is that it works as it's all his idea. I mean, he sets up earlier that he's going to let her get a shot at him. I get that. Mm-hmm. But then he has him beaten. 
if he really thought he could win, he could just pin Jeff Jarrett, become a champion, then pick him up and let his wife hit him. Yeah. If he figures what he wants. I think it would have worked if, like, he goes for the pin. and she But goes, no, Kimberly no, signals, wait, honey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, yeah, like, waves the guitar or something. Mm-hmm. Make it clear that she needs this to happen, because she does. He needs to get in the ring and hit him for Jeff to win. And they don't quite do enough with it, but in fairness to them, she does actually, I didn't mention it in my recap, but she does actually have the guitar earlier in that. She does, yeah. She's shown standing outside with the guitar. I agree. I think they should have had her signal for it. Yeah. But at least you could maybe reason, oh, he saw her holding the guitar there and was like, oh, yeah, I promised that I'd let her hit Jarrett. It, it almost works. I mean... It gets closer than you honestly think it should yeah. for this angle, but yeah. Yeah. The problem with Bruso booking and even people that book like Russo, because obviously he didn't book that long when he really looked at how many months he booked, is you immediately expect the turns and surprises. Mm-hmm. You know there's going to be a twist, so a twist isn't surprising. It's just hopefully the execution's good enough, you accept it. So, I mean, the second she grabs the guitar and goes ring, I'm like, oh, she can hit, hit DP. Mm-hmm. No matter how good they try to sell on their part for her part or Kimberly's part, it's obvious from the get-go that she's going to betray him. And it's it's one of those twists that's also a little hard to justify. Yes. I mean, because she's not his manager. She's not his tag partner. No. She's his wife. <laughs> uh-huh. You don't have to have it on this show. You can have that just be the shock ending to it. But there darn well better be an amazing explanation for this the next night on Nitro. And you know there won't be. They try. <laughs> no, they do a very lengthy look how great we are opening thing. It takes like 30 minutes on Nitro. Yeah. She used the DDME line, because I know you love that one. Yeah, I know. Uh, Yeah, it doesn't really work. Okay. Aside from a longer-than-necessary brawl in the crowd and another disappointing finish, this was the sort of match that I've been hoping for all night. Mm -hmm. It got a reasonable amount of time, it had a lot of variety, it worked in some good counter-sequences and -and back-and-forth swings of momentum, and it told a nice story of the dominant, angry babyface Paige fighting against Jarrett's dishonorable and manipulative tactics, ascending from early emotional brawling to more focused and intricate sequences in the late match, as both guys tried to outthink the other. Trust DDP and Jarrett to give us something with an honest-to-goodness plot. Yeah, right. The ending does hurt it, and the interference takes way too long to resolve, I think. To go back to what I said before, it feels like it's something that's just done to be shocking rather than because there's actually a good plan for it. Mm, yeah but still it doesn't ruin the match no it's too well put together otherwise so it's a good match to end the show at least i just wish it had a slightly better ending right i agree with that yeah it also has well the problem with jeff jared matches is when he shatters the guitar and debris is everywhere and the ref's like huh oh well <laughs> yeah yeah and that that becomes like a 10 year plus jeff jared yeah At least with this one, again, they did say from the beginning of the show, the DQ rules have been not entirely gone, but heavily loosened. And we saw Jarrett attack Paige with a chair in full view of the ref earlier and not get DQ'd. So that would be a good rule question, by the way. If the ref sees her hit DP, is it DQ? Yeah, I think that's a good question. Yeah. Because she's his manager functionally here. Yeah. I want to say it's on the Nitro when all this reboot stuff happens. So before this show. Yeah, before this show. On that one, there's a bit where DP, of course, is fighting Jeff Jarrett. And they make sure to highlight the star of Rated Rumble, 
who's in the crowd this show to promote the movie. <laughs> and he does get pulled over the, uh, I think they show it on St. Marie. I think so, yeah. They pull him over the uh, barricade and him with the guitar. Okay, so this is the start of that angle. Yeah. Okay. That's a long angle for WCW at this point. Yeah. That leads to eight days later on the Nitro after the Salvatore Look How Great We Are show, where DP wins the world title. <laughs> so, yeah. Jeff Jarrett's uh, crowning as chosen one last eight days. Yeah, yeah. They never promised you a rose garden, Jeff. It's true. They did, however, promise you a world title, so you have a right to be PO'd about that. <laughs> That's true. So this leads to the Thunder after DP title win, where he's put in a tag match where he's defending his world title. So it's DDP and David Arquette, his buddy, versus Jeff Jarrett and Eric Bischoff. Tag team match with world title on the line on Thunder. David Arquette spears Eric Bischoff. So now Arquette wins the world title off of his partner by pinning someone else in the match. Yeah, it's very strange. Almost adds a slight little clarity to the crazy hardcore thing. Almost. Sadly, not the first time they've had a tag team match with the World Titles Online. Not even like the third time they've done it. Oh, God. Yeah. So, of course, that leads to Slambury 2000. Great episode, by the way, if you haven't listened yet. Where we get the Triple Cage of Doom. Jeff Jarrett, DP, and world champion David Arquette. Yep. Recreating the Cade match you didn't watch because you didn't watch Rated Rumble when it came in theaters and because uh, you're smart, <laughs> unlike us, <laughs> unlike us, yes. <laughs> I thankfully, as a kid, did not watch it in theaters. I watched no, it. No, yeah, true. I, yeah. I definitely watched it on TNT or TVS when they played it at yeah. some point in like suing decades. <laughs> but of course, I watched it again willingly. So go figure. Yeah, but that's life. It's a series of terrible decisions. It's true. With the New Blood celebrating, Tony quite rapidly signs off, and Spring Stampede 2000 is done. Thank goodness. Yes. So, overall thoughts on Spring Stampede 2000? Uh, a lot of matches. None of them are great. There are some that are okay, some that are decent, some that are just confusing as hell. And some of the hardcore match, which is above and below everything else. Uh, when I was putting my notes together before I printed them, because I have a lot of things on here with 14 matches. Yeah. I put matches that don't have interference at all in black, mm-hmm. put interference on them fully in red. And there's some where it's a little more nebulous. I put purple. I'm not sure what code to go with. There is a lot of red. <laughs> yes. Especially on page three of my notes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. It's just a recurring theme where if it happens once in a show, you're like, man, you know, it's disappointing because you love so-and-so babyface, and he could have won except this happened. But when it happens so many times on the show, you begin to wonder, why am I rooting for DDP or Mm -hmm. Ding or anybody? Because they're going to work really hard, and then... So-and-so is going to pop out, him with a chair, and then that guy's going to win. Yeah, either becomes completely demoralizing, or it just loses all impact and yes. meaning. Or both. Yeah, or both. It definitely both. So, I mean, and that's a problem they ran into as a company. They relied on that so much. One, they did towel switches on Nitro and Thunder. I don't know the nonsense happened. And then you go, why should I bother being happy when Sting wins his title? 
he's just going to lose it the same night at Nitro, which is a thing that happened last year. Right. Yep. There's some good stuff in here worth watching, but it's not worth like civically going, let's watch the show because it's it's not good. No, yeah, that's bad for your health. Yes. The series stagecoach was rolling along just fine. (laughs) Then the horses stampeded and the thing drove right off a cliff. Yeah. It's like WCW forgot everything they knew about making a wrestling show. All of the skills they demonstrated quite nicely over the preceding four shows. Just about everything that we praised on the rest of the series is gone here. It really saddened me to watch this. With the rest of the series being so great, this show feels even worse. The show is just so poorly thought out. So poorly put together. There's too many matches, and too many promos, and too many stories going on, so nothing gets anywhere near enough time to develop. Mm-hmm. It's not quite as hyperactive as Starcade 99 was, but it gets really close. Yeah. They really should have cut all the quarterfinal U.S. tournament matches, do those on TV, and start at the semifinals. That would cut the show to 10 matches instead of 14. Yeah. Also, cut Mancow versus Hart to bring it to nine, because really? Yeah, make it make it a dark match, like you do other matches like this. Yeah. There's just too many matches on this, so they get very little time. Because of that, most of the matches end up basic at best and sloppy messes at worst. And worse, the majority of them are plagued by bad booking and flat-out silly angles. Bam Bam replacing Cat, only to himself be replaced by Cat. Hmm. Wall being unable to tell the difference between a skinny ref and a muscle-bound Steiner. Yeah. Russo, half-wearing a stolen referee shirt, can count a pinfall. Vampiro dragging Sting under the ring. Kimberly hitting DDP for no clear reason and with no clear buildup. The entirety of Funk vs. Smiley, just all of it. Yeah. Oh, and whatever the heck the cruiserweight match was. (laughs) There's quite a few botches besides. The performances tonight are often, though not universally, sloppy. There's just so much wrong on this show that it's hard to see if they get anything right. Promos get next to no time. Everyone feels like they really need at least another 15 or 30 seconds more to really make the point they were trying to make and draw out the emotion they want us to feel. They go better than on Starcade 99 at least, but probably just because wrestlers are more used to Russo asking them to convey an entire storyline in half a second now. Yeah, more practice at that point, yeah. Commentary is mostly awful. They get in a few good lines here and there, and very occasionally have a decent discussion, but I honestly spent most of the show actively ignoring them. Uh Much like, it seems, Tony. Yes. They rarely contribute to the match or show storylines much at all, and more often distract, usually by way of Madden's offensive jokes or just some plain bizarre statements by Hudson. Tony tries to hold things together, but it feels like he's just going through the motions here, acting excited when he's not really feeling it. Other shows this series, Tony has sounded genuinely into things, which help raise the shows up. Yeah. This one, he tries for that feel, but too much is working against him and it doesn't feel legit. Mm -hmm. And what the heck happened to the set? Yeah. Where did all the personality of this series go? It's still Spring Stampede. Where's the cowboy stuff? Where's the fun video effects? Actually, where's the fun? Yeah. That's the central question for the show, I think. The previous shows in this series were fun. 
Fun for us watching, fun for the performers, fun for the commentary team. Lots of fun for the set designers and graphics guys. Oh, yeah, for sure. This one, it's just slapped together. It's like WCW staff woke from a week-long bender to realize the pay-per-view was tomorrow and they'd done no prep. (laughs) The care and love that went into the earlier shows is gone. And so, unsurprisingly, is the quality. Yeah. Spring Stampede 2000 exists to exist. I'd be much happier if it didn't. (laughs) Yeah. So, I I, I almost didn't put this segment on the show. Oh, wow. But I think we still need to ask Match of the Night and MVP. So, Al, your Match of the Night. Oh, man. I mean, it's one of those ones where if there were good matches throughout, I'd be like, a breath of content out here. You'd be like, oh, there's six really good matches. I got to pick. It's so hard. But yeah, I actually did run it down initially on here. I really, I was trying to see if you going through enough testing will push me more to the side. Honestly, you, you, you thought that you would get something that would convince you that a match was good for me tonight. <laughs> you, maybe your recap would help me somehow. But, oh, okay. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's, uh, it's not on there. I didn't write it out. I mean, there's matches people I like, like Mike Awesome and Sting and DDP, even to certain extent Jeff Jarrett. And there's people that I like but know not to expect too much from, especially in 2000. Like, unfortunately, Flair, mm-hmm. dude, number of reasons, Bagwell, even Jane Douglas to a certain extent. As good as a lot of DDP Jeff Jarrett was, the finish hurts it for me because it's so abrupt and out of nowhere. It's silly. And this long part where it feels like they were told makes match go longer, which is weird on a show where they constant cut, cut, cut. Mm-hmm. It's like they cut so much and didn't realize that they were now under a time. Yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah. So like, no, no, do like two more minutes in this figure four hold, guys. TDP is desperately scribbling yeah. two more pages of notes on us. Exactly. Was just, <laughs> stretch it out. Stretch it out. <laughs> so purely on match merit, I have to go Sting Booker T. I, I honestly kind of thought that would be the one that would get you. Yeah. Not perfect, but it's good. That was the best of the short matches tonight. Yeah. For my part, there were a few decent matches among the earlier set. Booker T versus Sting, I think I agree that's the best of the shorter matches tonight. Sure. But I have to give this to Page versus Jarrett. Gotta figure that, yeah. Ending aside, it was just a good, hard-fought, well-plotted match with the kinds of twists, turns, and escalating action that I've been looking for all night. It's the only match on the show that gets more than 10 minutes. No, yeah. It's 15 on a show yeah. that's like... Yeah. Five, well, six. I was like, one thing I didn't mention, just to talk about matching quickly, the hardcore match with all the nonsense goes eight minutes long. It feels like roughly five hours, but yeah. That's longer than both of my Gosses' matches combined. Yes. So, that's my thought on this show. <laughs> as far as that goes. The night's other decent to good matches feel like an audition for a later actual match. Yes. This one feels like a more polished actual match. Yeah. It feels like pay to watch Spring Stampede and then watch Thunder and Nitro for free. Yeah. That's, I think, what makes it the match of the night to me is honestly just because it's the only one that I actually feel like I can truly call a match. No, I get that. All the rest of them feels like, let's try out things that we're going to do later. Yeah. So. I think with with less fluff, I'm 100% with you. Yeah. MVP? 
in my heart, I really want to give it to Mike Awesome. I thought when he's allowed to just actually wrestle, he's really good. Mm-hmm. His dives are good. He has good impact on his moves. He gets the one promo segment, which is not amazing. I almost said awesome, but I didn't. <laughs> it, it's good, though. It's just, he doesn't get the extra thing in, in his promo because it's so, as you said, so short, so cut off. I think if I could disconnect him from all the nonsense that he's wrapped in, he's my MVP. He shines in his little bit, but there's not enough there, I think, to really say show MVP. Mm-hmm. So we're looking at people that form neither a long match like Jeff Jarrett, DP, who argue I wrestled some people in total match length for the whole show, which is crazy. And people that sort of had, will do everything, even if their matches had issues on their own. I had to go with the easy, but honestly, always reliable choice and sting. Okay. Like with Slam for me, go watch that show, seriously. He retains his character with all the stuff that's happening with it. On that show, especially where they're trying to demystify and take all the color and fun out of everything. Mm hmm. Hogan's wearing all black and is like rah, swearing and everything. Sting is still he's crowsting, but he's got the energy of pre-crowsting. Yeah, even if his matches don't always work, I don't think it's ever his fault. No, no, I think he's giving his best out there still. Yes, despite the situation the company's in, he's still giving his best. We did have some good performances tonight that rose above the bad booking and the short match times. I'll give some credit to Eric Bischoff for some great acting throughout the show during the Hogan angle, to Scott Steiner for actually wrestling instead of stalling for most of the night, as well as differentiating himself from other New Blood members. And again, as as you said, for Sting, call out Lex Luger and Buff Bagwell as well for actually blessedly having some character during their entrances and matches. True, yeah. But I'm going to give this to Booker T. Okay. He just has the most interesting arc tonight. Technically part of the New Blood, but behaving with honor and respect for his opponent, Sting, as he makes clear where he agrees with and disagrees with the faction to which he belongs. It's a complicated performance, and Booker does a darn good job with it mm-hmm. in a very short time that he's actually given. That's very true, yeah. So it's it's quite a good job of capturing a, a very complicated character yeah. element without getting the time that you actually need to portray uh-huh. it. I was impressed by that. Sure. And that, finally, wraps up our review of Spring Stampede 2000. If you've enjoyed listening to us tonight, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook as Let's Go to the Ring. Links will be available in the episode description. Follow us for episode announcements and other show details, and share your own thoughts about each show as we go through. You can subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, Stitcher Radio, TuneIn, Verbal, or Audible. And please, if you've enjoyed this show, Give us a rating or review and share the show through your favorite social media platforms to help others discover us. Many thanks to OSW Review for attendance and pay-per-view figures and to Gina Trujillo for our logo. We finished the final Spring Stampede. So next up, we'll take a look back at the series as a whole, remembering better days. Oh yes. We'll have a fun discussion about the series themes, try to figure out its identity, and discuss our favorite, and least favorite, the show, moments from the series. We'll play some games and hand out our series awards. And of course, we'll announce what we're covering next. These are my favorite episodes to do, so I very much hope that you have fun listening. 
This is Bob Moore for Alec Pridgen, signing off. Good night, everybody. Happy wrestling. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Let's Go to the Ring, where we take a look at the good old days, and not-so-good old days, of World Championship Wrestling. wrestling. <laughs> wow, I think that's the first time I've ever screwed up that line. I think you did, you did their website, though, because their, their website is wcwwrestling.com. <laughs>